Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today, our podcast will feature our The Good Book Club discussion of Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview by D. Michael Quinn. Our discussion focuses on the formation of the Mormon Church in the early 1800s and the heavy influence of folk magic traditions. We also touch on magic traditions in early Christianity, as well as the background of our author, D. Michael Quinn. This was an absolutely fascinating dive into folk magic traditions, and we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. This book club meeting was originally held on October 23, 2022. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an amazing Halloween edition of The Good Book Club, where we will be discussing D. Michael Quinn's amazing book, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview. We've had kind of an interesting morning with people crashing our Zoom party. So we think we finally got that under control. Because of that, we won't be doing any business um, talking about upcoming events, but you can find all that information on Facebook or um, email, reach out to me. We'll get that information out to you. So without any further ado, I hope, (laughs) here we go. So we are going to be talking about, as I said, early Mormonism and the magical worldview, and we have split it into originally three parts. And then I realized that one of the really important things about this book is why in the world was it even written? I mean, that's something you don't ever necessarily ask yourself when you start to read. Why did this author write this book? But the story of how this book came out is as exciting as the book itself. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the origins of the book and then go into some of the early magic and biblical and American, early American. And then we'll move on to Landon with Joseph Smith and the Magical World Magic Views. And then Linda will, Melinda will finish up with Persistence and Decline of Magic. So that's kind of how it's going to roll today. So let's get started with our slides which I hope are intact. Whoever hacked us actually uh, stole some of our beginning slides. This is, couldn't get any crazier. So we're gonna start with part one. And part one is our author and why this book was written, which is absolutely a fascinating story. So our author is D. Michael Quinn. He was born in California in 1944. He grew up in Pasadena. Um, He was in school. He thought he would be a doctor. And so he was in medical school. He was um, a night nurse. He was seeing patients and he just kind of became overloaded. And he actually um, flunked out of medical school and decided, well, next best thing, I'll become a historian, (laughs) which makes perfect sense. But we're so glad that he did. So he served a mission. He's a faithful Latter-day Saint. He served a mission in 1963 in England. He graduated from BYU in English literature. He actually served in Vietnam for three years, and he was in military intelligence, which makes sense. His attention to detail, which I'm sure if any of you read the book, the the copious amounts of footnotes that he has, um, I think that may have had to do something with his ability to investigate and um, have sources. He went to graduate school at the University of Utah, and he eventually got his PhD from Yale. So let's move to the next slide. He is known as one of the notorious September 6th. 
If you're not familiar with the September 6th, that's another rabbit hole that you could jump down at another time. This is a group of scholars and intellectuals, many of them professors or adjunct professors at BYU, who were excommunicated right around the same time in September of 1993. And I was on campus at that time at BYU, and it was it was a very charged situation. Um, they were excommunicated for, oh... Uh, talking about mother in heaven, talking about the church power hi hierarchy, talking about the Davidic um, stranger, and in Michael Quinn's case, talking about um, Mormonism and magic. So that's an interesting thing to look into if you guys want more information, but he was one of the September 6th. So in the 70s, uh, when Michael Quinn was studying and getting his PhD and at the University of Utah, nobody knew very much about the origins of early Mormonism and its connection to magic. It just wasn't really on the radar. And in fact, the involvement of people throughout history in magic pursuits really wasn't on anybody's radar. If you wrote a biography, say, of Sir Isaac Newton, you didn't mention that half of his life and half of his library was devoted to astronomy and the occult. It was just something that didn't register with historians and they just looked past it as maybe a quirk, a glitch, so as far as the church is concerned, in 1974, there was a very famous speech given in Nauvoo at the Mormon History Association. This was given by Reed Durham, who was an institute director and historian for the church. And I call it the speech that opened Pandora's box because on a thundery day in Nauvoo at this conference, he dared to give a presentation about Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman that he wore even when he was martyred. When he, he was martyred, he was wearing this, had this in his pocket. And um, the Masonic connections to the church. Well, this just like wildfire went crazy. Nobody had heard anything about this. This is one of the first times that the common person had sort of, and, and historians and people that um, study church history had kind of got on the radar that there was something about magic in early church history. And in fact, it was so disturbing <laughs> at um, Nauvoo, the Nauvoo site, they had a weather vane um, that had Masonic symbols on it. As soon as he gave a speech, they took it down because they realized, oh no, there's something going on here. So anyway, this, this sent shockwaves uh, through the intellectual community. And uh, Michael Quinn heard about it didn't think too much about it. It was sort of interesting. He at the time was working for Leonard Arrington, who was a church historian. And Arrington was angry because he thought, oh no, this kind of talk is going to get all the archives closed. We're never going to be able to do any more research um, because now perhaps the people that did know a little bit about these magical origins would be concerned that more people would find out. So this was an absolutely pivotal speech at the time. So uh, the next thing that kind of happened is uh, Michael Quinn had written a thesis paper, and we can go to our next slide, on the patriarch, the role of the patriarch. There used to be one central patriarch in the church, and it was kind of a power struggle between the patriarch and the quorum of the, of the 12, because the patriarch actually is known as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Um, and that didn't sit well with the other prophet seers and revelators. So there's always been this tension. So in 1977, um, Eldridge Smith, a direct descendant of Hiram Smith, which is what it took to be a patriarch at the time, you had to be a direct descendant, um, invited Michael Quinn to his home with the hopes that he would be able to collaborate on a book that would show everybody the true role of the patriarch, which was very important. And like I said, the power struggle, he was trying to 
make sure everybody knew how important that role was. So as I sat there talking, uh, Michael Quinn said, um, Patriarch Smith said, hey, would you like to see some artifacts from our family? Because he's a direct descendant of Hiram Smith. And Quinn said, of course, you know, he's a historian. This sounds amazing. So he brought out, if you look at the slide, um, the box that supposedly the golden plates had been in. And a lot of these are now on display at the church museum. Um, but back then they were in a private collection. They were with the Smith family. So Quinn was like, oh, that's amazing. And then he he said that, that Patriarch Smith would leave the living room, go to a bedroom, bring out these things for Quinn to see. So then he brought out the bloody clothes that Hiram was murdered in. So very disturbing, but they actually have them. They're bullet ridden. They're covered with blood. They have, He looked at the martyrdom clothes. He found that very interesting. Then he brought out a leather pouch. You can kind of see that there in the center, full of parchments with all kinds of uh, circles and symbols, Latin, looked like some Egyptian writing, all kinds of little drawings. And he said, well, these are the magical parchments that were passed down in the Smith family that Joseph wore. And Michael Quinn said, I went, oh, like it didn't register. It, it didn't register at all. He just moved on, didn't give it another thought. He said, oh, okay, oh, do you have any journals? And so of course then Eldred Smith, a little disappointed and he just pulled out the journals and they worked through the journals the rest of the night. He also was able to show him a pair of garments that was originally worn by Hiram Smith. So when Michael Quinn went home, he said he wrote in his own journal, oh, had a wonderful evening with Eldred Smith, did not even mention the fact that he had seen these parchments. It, it was just so inconsequential or he didn't have any way to really understand what that was. So again, magic, not known, not recognized even by historians until, I bet you all know what happens next, right? Absolutely. Mark Hoffman has entered the chat and Bruce, let's go ahead and let him in. <laughs> okay, this is funny because I, you know, I'd like to reach out to people. I actually wrote Mark Hoffman a letter. <laughs> I sent it to the Gunnison Correction Facility, and I just wanted to ask him about it because if you read that salamander letter that came out in 85 or 84, um, he knew more than 99.9% .9 of the church historians and a lot of the people in the Quorum of the Twelve about the origins of early Mormonism and magic. So for those of you that may not know, Mark Hoffman was an extremely skilled forger who started putting finding church documents that were very pivotal and also some early American documents. I mean, the things that he found were just incredible. That should have tipped people off that no one is that lucky to find this many things. But the letter that most people know that caused so much interest in magic was called the Salamander Letter. And it was a letter that was written supposedly from um, Martin Harris to W.W. Phelps, describing Joseph Smith, telling him who this Joseph Smith person is. And he mentions seer stones. He mentions treasure digging. He talks about um, going to get the golden plates. And in the box, there's a white salamander that suddenly becomes a man and starts attacking Joseph Smith. And that's actually based on a true story that we'll talk about later. So suddenly, magic is on the horizon for everybody in the church. And Mark tried to sell it two people in the church. He tried to sell it to Gerald and Sandra Tanner. That's one of my favorite stories. And Gerald looked at it. He goes, no, he instantly knew that, that there's no way this was right. It was too similar to some other previous writings. And I love that about the Tanners because obviously having this be authentic would be, you know, 
won for their team, right? But they didn't. They had too much integrity and they said, no, we're not going to buy this. This is actually a forgery. And they actually tried to warn church officials. So eventually Steve Christensen, um, the son of Mr. Mack, if you're familiar with Mr. Mack's clothing, um, very well-to-do Mormon, he purchased the letter. I'm sure the church had him do it. And then he donated it to the church. And that's why you see that picture there up at the top um, of the prophet and many of the apostles gathered around with Mark Hoffman and they're looking at this amazing letter. But then, of course, it's a problem. What the heck is a salamander? What does this have to do with early Mormonism? And so Oaks kind of went on the offensive and he went out and he would give addresses and say, I think the white salamander is Moroni, you know, things like that. But the bottom line is magic and the origins of early Mormonism are now on the radar, even on a national scale. This made the national news everywhere. So let's go to the next slide. Um, so a lot of people, uh, Michael Quinn said they were in a faith crisis. People in his ward are coming up to him and asking him, what is this? What is this magic? What is this church? What do you know about this? And Michael Quinn is then sort of thinking, oh, that parchment. Oh, that Reed Durham talk. He started to be curious too. And so he went to his um, scholarly friends who work for the church and he said, hey, everybody's asking about this. You guys are working on something, right? You guys are putting together something so that we can help people who are confused by this. And they said, oh, yes. Oh, yes, we're working on something. And he said, well, it's going to come out soon, right? Because people are really concerned and they're being asked about this. They're asking me about this. And the church historian said, oh, no, no, there's so many sources to get through. It's going to be years before anything comes out. And so Michael Quinn said, well, can I see your sources? And they said, oh, no, no, you can't see those. And so Michael Quinn said, okay. All right. And so he decided that he needed to look into this and start studying, researching, and put out something on his own. And so right about that time, um, Mark Hoffman, it was discovered that everything was a fraud. You have the bombings. Um, he was sent to prison, but at the Gunnison Correctional Facility. <laughs> and Quinn is now immersed in studying just early magic in America, early magic in Christianity. And luckily, there were other sources other places um, that this is sort of finally on everybody's radar and they're starting to look into this very important element of our history. So he gave a presentation at Sunstone where he started to talk about magic. And so he's on the radar of the church of somebody that's talking about magic. And at this time he's working at BYU. So, of course, that's a little dicey, right? He's a history professor and he's a very beloved teacher. He's voted favorite teacher of the year, I think, several times. In 1987, um, his book, I can show you guys the first edition, the very first edition, there it is. If we can go to the next slide, we'll talk about that. So the first edition, 1987, it's published by Signature Book. It's not as all as long as the edition probably most of you guys had. Um, and the footnotes in it were incorporated into the text. You probably can't see that. So we don't have that wonderful final 300 pages <laughs> where he put all of his, his footnotes. So in between the time of the first edition and the second edition, a lot happened for Michael Quinn. Um, for one, he was called an apostate, a heretic, an antichrist. And this was by other professors at BYU. I mean, it became very, very difficult. Um, it was just information nobody had any way to wrap their brain around. They just couldn't believe they were hearing this about the early origins of the church. Um, he did not publish another edition right away because he wanted to make some changes. He wanted to tweak some things. He was learning 
new information even after the first publication. So there was a series of a decade there where uh, it was very valuable. If you had one of these books, you might have paid hundreds of dollars for it because it was not in print again. So between the first and second edition, he left BYU because the pressures just became too intense. And he really, unfortunately, was never able to find another position where he would be able to get tenure. He did little things here and there, still doing research, but everywhere where his particular skill set might might be valuable, another church university or someplace that had Mormon studies, they were too connected to wealthy Mormon donors who said, I don't want anything to do with Michael Quinn. So just simply because of these things that he brought to light. So he really sort of struggled in that way for the rest of his life. Um, he then was excommunicated as part of the September 6th in 1993. And at that point, he's like, gloves are off. I can say whatever I want to say. So the first book, if you read the first edition, was a little more faithful. It was a little more apologetic. By the time we get to our second edition, the one that you guys probably all have, um, there's a lot of things in it where he takes on his critics. He addresses some of the things that the critics of the day were saying. And like I said, the gloves were off. Um, so he addresses his critics. He puts the end notes at the end of the book. He includes new information that he's learned um, within the last decade. And he also, um, sorry, I can't read that, fixed any errors or anything that were in the was in the first edition. So it's interesting uh, to read the difference between the first and the second because it definitely portrays the journey of a man who's gone through a lot since it was published. So let's go to our next slide. So that's kind of the story of how the book came to be, which I found absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And it's really sad because he was absolutely a favorite professor at BYU. And a lot of his students came to him and said, you know, I, I can't be a history major anymore because I'm a faithful member of the church. And I can see where those two absolutely, it's a crossroads. And so people ended up not being history majors because of that. So, and I think he always felt sort of bad about that. So let's move on to our next thing, which is, um, early Christianity, and thank you. I know I'm like, I know I have it somewhere in my brain. Uh, biblical and early American magic. Okay, so, oops, sorry. Oh, somebody was texting me. Sorry, apologize about that. Okay, so the question is, and this is the big burning question, which did come first, religion or magic? And you see here, I have the picture of the amazing um, Dumbledore, of course, of Hogwarts, and I have the high priest of Israel. Which came first, religion or magic? Well, I think we're going to find that that's almost an impossible question to answer. And they're absolutely linked in so many ways that there's no way to separate it. Let's go to our next slide. So um, Claude Levi-Strauss was a French anthropologist who sat around in his blue jeans all day. No, I'm kidding, but that name just makes me laugh. Um, he is not in relation to actual Levi Strauss, but he was a French anthropologist who um, wrote wrote a lot of information about this topic. And one of my favorite quotes of him, and this was in the book, is, there is no religion without magic anymore than there is magic without a trace of religion. Again, just that interweaving, it's almost impossible to separate. And we're going to see this as we start talking about uh, the Bible and early America. So um, this is another good quote from Daniel Lawrence O'Keefe. He says, it is because the interactions of magic and religion are so complicated and paradoxical that there has been such confusion as to which preceded which magic, which, which preceded which magic or religion, <laughs> and even as to which is which. 
First, there has been outright disagreement as to whether a particular phenomenon can be classified as magic or religion. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Is it magical or is it um, a spiritual manifestation? And second, when even the investigators agree on which is which, magic and religion overlap so conspicuously and beg, borrow, and steal from each other so outrageously that there is disagreement about priority. So basically, it's a hot mess. <laughs> All right, let's go to our next slide. Perfect. So we're going to talk about ancient Judaism and Christianity and the origins of magic there. Go ahead to our next slide. So ancient Judaism emerged from an environment full of pagan magic and henotheistic worldview where you accepted the idea that there are many gods and they have varying levels of power in influence and influence in your life every single day. That was just that was just your worldview. And both Jewish and Christian lore have deep, deep connections to the occult, to demonologies, angelologies, incantations, amulets, talismans, spells, charms, exorcism, rites, glossolalia, we're going to talk about some of these. One inter interesting thing I learned is the difference between an amulet and a talisman. I didn't know this until I read this book. So a talisman is something that you create to be a lucky charm. And for example, the Jupiter talisman that Joseph wore. An amulet is something that you find that you attribute magical powers to. I guess maybe a four-leaf clover, um, a seer stone, right? Something that's natural that you found. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I I'd never, never heard that before. So let's really start talking about it. This, this is my another one of my favorite statements. We practice religion. They practice magic. So I went through the scriptures and I pulled out everything I could find that looked magical or sounded magical. And if you kind of look at all these different things, it could go either way. You know, is it conjuring or is it feeling the spirit? You know, is it sorcery or is it a miracle of Jesus? There's just two ways to look at almost every single thing that's mentioned um, in the early scripture. But we practice religion and they practice magic. I just think that's great. And that really is the theme. So let's talk about some of the some of the crossovers, some of the things that that were important to both the magical world and religion. So what's in a name? Um, the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, Michael Quinn tells us, is translated from the Hebrew consonants. And power in a name um, is, is something that goes back anciently as far as magic. Um, things that, uh, it's a powerful belief. Um, Egyptian priests, um, Hebrew priests, you can't utter these names. Harry Potter, right? He who shall not be named. So I don't even know if I should pronounce these names because I feel like something might happen. But these are the different ways that you would say God. And you're not supposed to say them because there's power in a name and something can happen. So this is a similarity between the magical world and Christianity where they, they maintain that concept that there's power in a name. You can use it to invoke things. You can call on God or don't say it because something bad's going to happen. So it's extremely similar. Again, we're practicing religion. You are practicing magic. Let's go to the next thing. Okay, another interesting story um, in, in the early scriptures is the story of Jacob and the rod. So Jacob, of course, was trying to marry Rebecca, ended up marrying, being tricked into marrying Leah, married Rebecca finally, and was going to leave and have his own household. So he said to Laban, their father, well, I'd like to take some of your flock to set up my household. And he said, that's fine. You can have the spotted flock. Well, there weren't very many uh, sheep and goats that were spotted. So uh, 
Jacob took a rod. I know rods are so prevalent through all this. And he laid it down in front of the sheep and goats. And sure enough, pretty soon they started having offspring that were spotted until pretty soon most of the flock was spotted and he was able to walk away with with um, with a, a good uh, number of the herd. Now, I've read apologetics about this. I never knew there were Christian apologetics. I mean, to the extent that I looked into them, but they're there. So there's this thought that there's an enzyme missing in the goats and sheep. If they had it, they would be producing spotted ones. The rod, something about the um, plant the value of it. If they eat the rod, they're going to get the enzyme. Anyway, they explained it all. But again, we practice religion. You practice magic. He laid the rod in front of the sheep and they became spotted and he took them. So absolutely fascinating, these parallels. Let's go on to the next one. So another great story is the story of the silver cup, Joseph's cup. We all know that story. He's sold into Egypt. He rises to the top. He's a wise, wonderful man. His brothers come to visit. Um, they don't recognize him. And he wants to make sure they're going to go home and bring back a little brother. So he hides his special cup in the bag. Well, what they don't explain, and what most it's certainly not in Come Follow Me, is that this is a cup with which he practiced hydromancy, which is when you fill it with water and you look into it and you can see the future. And, and that basically gave him his wisdom. So again, a lot of these things in the Bible, if you know what you're looking for and you read carefully in the early structure in the early scriptures, it's extremely magical and it has origins in the occult. Absolutely. So I thought that was, I hadn't heard that story either. I thought that was interesting. Um, let's go to the next one. Okay. This is one of my absolute favorite ones. And I even have an awesome uh, visual participation element to this one. So the Urim and Thummim, when you're raised LDS, of course, you know that these are the wonderful sacred stones with which everything was translated. Well, this is not what they were <laughs> in ancient times. There's a reason I called it roll the dice, casting lots and taking the Urim and Thummim to Vegas. These actually, I would consider them more like dice. So if we can share our screen for a minute, Bruce, uh, safely, right? We have High Priest uh, Doubting Tomas with us. How are you, High Priest Doubting Tomas? Why, I'm feeling a little blue today. <laughs> I'm liking your, yeah, that's that's really close. So basically, the High Priest. The high priest, as you can see in the slide, and then Tom is wearing um, a representation. This is called an ephod, um, the part, the golden part. So it's basically a pouch with jewels that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now on his shoulder um, are the Urim and the Thummim in those little pouches on his shoulder. So somebody would come to the priest and he would say, oh, great high priest doubting Tomas. Can you tell me if we'll ever be able to Zoom safely again in our book club? We need to know. The priest would take the Urim and Thummim, exactly, ah, out of the pouch. He would put them into, that's right, there, and show them the markings. So these are actually what, what no, show them the, oh, you can't be dropping the Urim and Thummim. <laughs> okay, so I replicated the actual, there you go. The problem is I don't know which one says yes and which one says no. So I don't know if this demonstration will work, but the priest would put those into his pocket, put it in your pocket, in the in your pouch. That's right. So we asked the question, oh, high priest, will we ever be able to zoom safely again so that everybody can feel secure? That's right. Shakes it up a little bit. There you go. Reaches in and pulls out the answer, which is 
Um, I'm hoping that says yes. That's what I hope. So, you know, it all has to do with divination. Answer hazy. Try again. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Turn it over. You can pull the other one out. There you go. Somebody knows. Anyway, we're hoping. I hope that wasn't it. Yeah. It's basically like a magic eight ball. There you go. It's perfect. So, you know, when they describe the Urim and Thummim, the way that Joseph Smith used it, that that really was not what the Urim and Thummim really was all about. And it's casting lots, uh, which you hear about all the time in the scriptures, and divination, you're looking into the into the future. So that is the true story of the Urim and Thummim. Again, all these things we're just touching on for the sake of time. And any one of these you could delve into and spend weeks researching. So another thing that was common, and thank you, High Priest Tomas. Yes, thank you so much. Um, the other thing that was really common, of course, was the uh, talking about snakes. Snakes were sacred. We have biblical snakes. We have the Garden of Eden. We have Moses throwing down his staff and becoming a snake that eats the other snakes. And we have Moses saying, look at my, my snake staff and you will be healed. In fact, today, what is the medical symbol? It's a snake. That's right. Some things carry over. So again, it's magic when those uh, court magicians are doing it in Moses's time, right? That's just magic. But when Moses does it. It's religion. So it really is in the eye of the beholder on that one. All right, let's go to the next one. I'm trying to move pretty quickly here. Um, okay, so zombies in the Bible, right? It's a dead man party. This was really Really interesting to look into. Let me see if I can grab my notes right here. So there are many cases in early Christianity of people being raised from the dead. And I think because that's the ultimate miracle, right? I mean, death was a huge part, much more than, than it is of our lives now. So there are many situations where people were raised from the dead. So we have Elijah and the widow's son who is dead. And he goes to the son's room and he lays himself on top of the dead boy. And he does that three times. And after he's done that, the boy comes to life. So again, this is a religious miracle. This has nothing to do with the occult, right? <laughs> so another situation, this time we've got Elisha, right? Same thing, always a widow, always a widow's son, dies again. Uh, this time Elisha, he lays himself on the dead body. It says mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. And then he added a really awesome spiritual um, element. He sneezed seven times and the boy came back to life. So again, this is a spiritual experience. This is not magic or is it? Um, there's a case where Elisha's bones were in the ground and somebody died. They had to bury him very quickly. It was during war. They threw him into Elisha's tomb. He came right back to life. So even touching the bones, the relics, of um, a holy man can bring you back to life. And that probably sounds familiar. There's a lot of worship of relics and bones of saints as we go forward. Um, another, there's so many widow's sons. I really can't even go through all these notes. We have Jerry, then we have Jesus raising different people. We have Jerry's daughter, we have Lazarus. And then of course we have Jesus Christ himself rising from the grave. And not only Jesus, but all of the saints that were resurrected at the same time. So, is it magic? No, it's a powerful spiritual experience, but you can see how they were just so interlocked that it's impossible. It just depends on your point of view, your worldview. So I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So of course I had to do this. I thought this was very interesting. Um, was Jesus a magician, right? Uh, in the scripture, sometimes he's referred to as a magician. So I had to do the Harry Potter te test and I came up with some similarities that I found between the two of them that I thought were kind of interesting. So they both had a prophesied birth. 
They were born as a special one. They were hunted and had to flee as a baby. They don't know who they are until about 11 or 12. Um, they were friends with the outcasts and the outliers. They had a very close group of followers who always protected them. They possessed magical powers, but they only used them from, for good and very subtly. Um, they have to eventually sacrifice themselves for the whole rest of the world. And they wake up from the dead because of the power of love. And then in their death experience, they are marked. And that mark is how they're recognized. So I just thought that was really interesting. So many similarities, magic, religion, again, such a great area. So um, Jesus was considered a, magi a magician in a lot of scriptures and especially in the Gnostic gospels and in, in some of the earlier writings. So the idea of Jesus the magician is found in Judaism, Gnosticism, Christianity, Orthodoxy, heterodoxy, sorry, heterodoxy, paganism, Islam, and Mandinism. And a lot of the recorded miracles of Jesus mimic the, the ancient magic process practices. And we could go over and over this, but I think you guys probably mostly know what I'm talking about. For example, spittle on the eyes to cure the blind and uh, reproducing food. That was always a big one. And um, let me see what this, uh, some of the other ones, just basically a water to wine. These were all magician tricks, but they weren't when they were a powerful spiritual experience um, that was created by Jesus. So you may notice these pictures. He looks like he has a wand. I know a lot of people point to that. That actually was considered more of a staff, very short staff. So, but I still love those pictures. I, I think that, you know, kind of freaks people out when you say, look, here's Jesus. And he's got his little, I have my wand here somewhere. So <laughs> I love it. So anyway, so then Jesus is gone, but the magic lives on, of course, with this little brief, brief pit stop over in Mesoamerica. We'll move past that. And now we're going to start talking about, I think our next slide is, yes. So the different practices that existed in the church, um, again, and that, that harken back to occult or magical eras. So glossolalia, that's power of words. So you have things repeated in a certain way, in a special way, in a special cadence, and you can't deviate from that. You have that a witch, right? Might say a spell. You have a pope repeating math. You have people repeating um, religious phrases in a religious ceremony. And I know I don't have to make the parallel <laughs> to where in the LDS church we see glossolalia. And I think Melinda's going to talk a lot about that um, in section four. So again, just the idea that things, these things have always been here. And so like this slide, ooh, 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 it's magic or is it religion? These are all things that existed in the early Christian church once Jesus was gone and they were considered the religious tradition of the day, the holy relics, the healing by the bones, the worshiping of the bones, talismans, um, astronomy, the crucifix to ward off evil, Kabbalah, the Jewish magical tradition, all these things from the magic tradition now appropriated by early Christianity and called more religious than magic. Um, then everything changed again. The Protestant Reformation, which, believe it or not, was kicked off on Halloween Day, 1517. You've got Martin Luther. He's a German priest, 
He's a scholar. He's highly trained. He's also a historian, and he's had it with the Catholic Church and the use of indulgences, which is where, and this will sound so not familiar to you guys, but you have to pay to get into heaven. I know, crazy concept. Um, basically, you know, you have to buy a candle to go and light it in mass. So they were basically charging everybody so much to be able to make it into heaven. And Martin Luther just didn't think that was right. And he also felt that people needed to be more in charge of their own spirituality. And so he sent a letter. He didn't actually tack something up on a door. <laughs> Although, I mean, that's kind of a rumor, pretty much debunked. But he did send a letter um, to one of the popes in charge and said, you know what, we, we call for the end of this and basically schism, where a lot of people started uh, considering themselves more Protestant and Protestant and the Catholics kind of fell out of favor. And with them falling out of favor, the way to distance yourself from Catholicism was to distance yourself from all of these practices, which as we see over here, <laughs> considered the ones that didn't distance themselves, they were considered to be practicing rural folk magic. You've got the sorcerers, the witches, seekers of lost things, treasure divining, uh, magic, palmistry, jugglers. Believe it or not, a juggler is somebody that can make something magical happen. Not Well, it could actually be both. But at that same time period, as you're going up into the 1500s and 1600s, you have scholarly pursuits, things that are considered scholarly, alchemy and astrology. And that's like how Michael Quinn talks about um, Sir Isaac Newton, right? Amazing genius science. Yet half of his library was devoted to alchemy and astrology. And most historians up to maybe like 50 years ago, just kind of looked the other way on that. They didn't understand what an important part this played in the lives of, of all these early people. So it's interesting to see how that kind of lines up. Let's go to our next slide. Okay, so this, this was a revelation to me. I did not know this. Um, you always picture early America, right? They're all in church. They're devout. They're outrageously religious. No, not true. Early Americans were religious but they were predominantly unchurched. They practiced a combination of Christianity with folk cures, folk magic, and superstitions. Only 15% of white Americans in the colonial period actually belonged to a church. So what were they doing if they weren't in church? They were practicing their own version of folk magic, and they all owned a Bible, and they had memorized the Bible. So they were basically creating a hybrid of what they considered religion based on their folk traditions that were passed on, and what they read in the Bible. It reminds me kind of how a priest, high priest Tomas went on his mission to Mexico. And he said when he would convert them to Mormonism, they would bring their Catholicism with them. And so they were practicing this mashup, this hybrid of all these different practices. And that is what they called their religion. So uh, this, of course, is a, a shout out to those of you that love the Holy Grail. How do you know she is a witch? <laughs> so as people started to become more churched, or as I like to call it, churching up, um, they started to shun the people that were practicing the folk magic. And every once in a while, you would, see, you would see a clash, usually in a town where there was, you know, a lot of social pressures or things were happening, but exactly like the Salem witch trials, where people are starting to gravitate toward formalized churches formal religion, and yet you still have the people that are practicing the folk magic that they've always practiced. And so then there's a clash and you're a witch. And interestingly, Joseph Smith Sr.'s grandfather was one of the accusers for two women that were actually 
um, put to death as being a witch. So I thought that was kind of ironic or apropos. I don't know. So then we have the great, the first great awakening, and we are just zooming through history here. And we've got the mid 1700s and the second great awakening in the, the early 1800s. And this is basically when religion's starting to go wild, religion go wild, right? You've got charismatic preachers, you've got everybody churching up and very common occurrences all the time, angelic visitations, visits from deity. I don't think a lot of LDS people realize how common this was. There was nothing special about Joseph Smith saying, I've seen a vision, everyone and their dog was, do was doing it. Let's go to the next slide. Perfect. And there, that's how we come over what's called the, the perfect storm of the burned over district. This is the area in upstate New York where religion got to a fevered pitch. Now, it wasn't when Joseph Smith said that he has seen the first vision and that people were persecuting. No, this was later, but it definitely impacted how he presented himself versus more of a magical person or a religious person. So out of this area, as everybody tried to church up, you have the origins of Mormonism, the Shakers, you have the Adventists, you have some other spiritual, more spiritually oriented religions that develop out of this. But it was absolutely folk magic with an extension of religious faith. And the revivals of the day sent many scurrying to organized religion, which further mixed the occult, folk magic, and religion into a witch's brew. <laughs> so in the daily paper, you would read, read all about it in the new Nauvoo Expositor. Um, Agnes had an angelic vision yesterday. Good for her. Bob had a brush with deity, right? They talked about successful treasure digging. Um, I'm not sure that ever was a reality, especially for Joseph Smith, but they did promote that, which ad added to the you know enthusiasm for it. They talked about divining rods. They mentioned seer stones, special gifts of this seer. So this was just common everyday discussion among people. We probably can't picture that today, but that's, that's how it was. Let's go to our next slide. So, all right. So now let's get a little bit specific. And my section is almost over here. So let's talk about Joseph Smith's parents. So I don't know if you guys have seen actual pictures of Lucy Smith. Most of us are used to seeing the nice painting in the Come Follow Me manual. But here are a couple pictures of Lucy. So a lot of the, the idea that the Smith family practiced magic comes from third-party sources. This, which is why apologists are able to say, oh, you know, this is one from Lucy in her journal. And it sounds to me when I read it um, that she's kind of rebutting what people must have been kind of saying about them. Because she says, um, I kind of add at the beginning, the idea that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of Abrac, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business, we never during our lives suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation. But whilst we worked with our hands, we endeavored to remember the service of and the welfare of our souls. So I the, I look at this, the important phrase to me is important interest. She's basically saying folk magic, circles, faculty of Abrac, this is important to us, but lest you all think we also neglect other things, no, Although I question that because were they ever really farming? Was our farm ever successful? I don't know. But she's definitely telling everybody these two things are important for us, to us. And of course, while we work with our hands, and that means doing the farm work or what you need to do um, to survive, we also endeavor to remember the service and the welfare of our souls. And that phrase means folk magic. That's what they were doing. They were making sure that their souls were right with their incantations, their parchments, their stones. So if you're curious what the faculty of Abrac is, is. There's not a lot on it. So I was looking at it yesterday and I was like, I can't find anything. So who knows about this? 
ah, Radio Free Mormon. So he and I are acquaintances. So I texted him and he actually called me, which I thought was really fun. And he had me draw out this diagram that's actually in the back of the book. And so it's based on, of course, the word abracadabra, which is actually based on an ancient Aramaic phrase, which was avada kedavra. And those of you that are Harry Potter fans, about a cadaver, right? It's the killing curse. Sorry, I hope I didn't hurt anybody. But yeah, that's where every cadaver comes from. So you basically start with the A and you create this cone and you write out the word abracadabra. And then you count down seven from the top. Seven is a very special magical number. And that's where you hit abrac. And that's an absolutely powerful word infused with power. And so winning the faculty of abrac means um, prosperity, good luck, fortune, protection, all of that. And people actually used to design this on little um, talismans. They would wear it. So if you want to make yourself one, there it is. That's how you do it. Just write out abracadabra in a comb. So I thought that was interesting. And thank you, RFM, for helping us explain it. So here we have Lucy. I made her a Tinder profile just because I thought we should get to know her. So we have Lucy Mack. She's 44. Um, she's two feet away. I figured she might be hovering around here listening to this. Um, she's looking for religion. She loves mummies, um, searching for buried treasure, and contacting the dead. And she is willing to relocate for the right opportunities. So these are all of Lucy's hobbies that she just routinely practiced. A magic circle, soothsaying, medical arts, magic formulas, magic rituals, magic divination, palmistry, use of a seer stone, astrology, Egyptian mag magic, and of course, as we just discovered, winning the faculty of Abrac. So she was absolutely immersed in folk magic, but to her, it was religion. They were completely linked, her Bible and her magic. So then we're going to talk about Joseph Smith Sr. very quickly. The apple does not fall far from the tree, Joseph Smith Sr. He had a strong belief in witchcraft. He was known as a master rodsman. He had prophetic visions. He, of course, the magical parchment and um, spells. In fact, he once uh, enchanted a gun with a spell so it wouldn't save a turkey. He was a very interesting person. And one of the most interesting things, and this will be my last thing I talk about, um, that he was involved in, if we can go to our next slide. If you haven't heard about this, this is another rabbit hole. How much wood can a wood scrape scrape? Joseph Smith Sr. and the New Israelites, he belonged to a religious group um, in the early days. And they say, okay, I should say allegedly, there's a lot of evidence that he did. Apologists might say no, but I feel, anyway, after you hear what I have to say, you make your own decision. Um, Oliver Cowdery's father also supposedly was a member of this group. So this was run by someone named Nathaniel Wood. He was a congregationalist, but he was kicked out of that for hearsay and just general bad behavior. So he started his own group and called themselves the New Israelites. They practiced, and tell me if any of these practices of the New Israelites sound familiar, um, spiritual wifery, polygamy, peep stones, um, treasure digging, dowsing. They're building a temple. They're known as the New Israelites um, because they are directly descended from the Lost Ten tribes. They call themselves Israelites. They call everyone else Gentiles. They don't believe that the Bible was translated correctly because they believe the Catholics have adulterated it. So they come up with their own translations. They also teach that there are seven dispensations to the world. They, their prophet, Nathaniel Wood, is able to speak a special angelic language that only he can read and understand. Um, they're also very focused on becoming perfect in this life because that's the only way that they will be able to become immortal is if they can achieve perfection in this life. And they also believe that they weren't just created here on earth. 
they lived in a pre-existence. I know this all sounds very foreign to you. <laughs> One thing that is unusual is that if any woman went to the prophet and said, I feel like I have the devil or I just, I have bad feelings. The cure for that was for her to take off all her clothes and run around naked until she felt better. So that's an interesting practice we might not be so familiar with. Although I feel like some of the people that tried to zoom in with us earlier, they might know what that's all about. So anyway, um, it's called the Woods Great Group because uh, Nathaniel Wood uh, predicted the apocalypse and all of his followers gathered together there in Vermont and the locals got a little nervous. They called the militia and they came out. There were some shots fired. So it was a big scrape. So they're known as the Woods Great. The most interesting thing to me, aside from the fact that Joseph Smith Sr. was most likely a part of this and also Oliver Cowdery's father, is that. Um, so these guys all live in Vermont, the new Israelites. By 1850, 32 of those people living in Vermont now live in Utah, according to the census. So how do you explain that? I believe that obviously it was Mormon 1.0. That's absolutely what I think it was. So anyway, look more into that. It's very interesting. So that pretty much concludes my section. And I'm just going to leave you with this before we move to Landon into this boiling cauldron of folk magic, the occult, religious fever, and prophecies of greatness, Joseph Smith was born. <laughs> Thank you. And now take it away, Landon. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, so uh, I just wanted to go on and say that uh, uh, one clarification, I think what you meant was that those people showed up in Palmyra, not in Utah, uh, the, from the Woodscrape group. So No, uh, they were actually in Utah. They were well, in they, Utah. Oh, they ended up in Utah. They too. were in okay. Utah. They, they and and they ended Palmyra. up in Palmyra. So that's that's yeah. important. So, yeah. um, okay, well, let's move on then. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and there's a lot of this folk magic. This thing, you know, trying to narrow it down into a time frame was, was so difficult because there is so much of this in history. Back in 2011, Penn and Teller had a TV show called Foolish, where they'd have a, a magician come on, and that magician would try to he'd do a trick, and then Penn and Teller would try to guess what the what that trick was or how they performed the trick. We're going to try that today. We're going to try to figure out how this trick happened uh, that that uh, that we all are familiar with. So uh, let's start off with what the trick is. Uh, so the trick: pull a 500 billion dollar church out of a hat, and then this is the important part make the hat disappear. We got to make sure nobody knows about the hat. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that because I think most of us growing up in the church did not do, never heard this story, don't know what it, it, it was even talking about until later when we started getting into our, our faith journeys and, and, and started finding this stuff out. Can you go to the next slide? So in order to do pull this off, uh, uh, Joseph needed to have a, a magician's toolbox. So we're going to go over some of the tools that he used uh, and some of the tools of his trade. The first one, and we've talked about it quite a bit, is the divining rod. Uh, the divining rod is um, had several names. The divining rod, the Virgula Divina, Mosaic Wand, Rod of Nature, Rod of Aaron, uh, had a lot of different names. It was used by Joseph Smith Sr., Oliver Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery Sr., Joseph Smith Jr. All of them were uh, experts with the rod. Um, it, they'd use it mainly to find treasure, but you could also ask questions just like the... Uh, 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 Urim and Thummim, you could ask it yes or no questions, and if it bent, it was yes, and if it didn't bend, it was no. At one point, uh, Oliver Cowdery was interested in, uh, in in translating the Book of Mormon, and uh, so Joseph asked God, and he said, oh, yes, you through the power of the divining rod, you can translate, and this came out as DNC section 8, 
and, and uh, the, the Lord approved of this. He said uh, to, to Oliver in the original, he said, the gift of working with the sprout, which is the divining rod. Uh, but it was later changed because that was a little too magical. Uh, they changed it in the Good Doctrine and Covenants, and now you'll read it as the gift of Aaron. Uh, I don't know how you would translate a book with a stick. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe it was stick figures or something that appeared, but uh, that's what they used. Um, the next item is the seer stone. And what would happen is, uh, as we read about, Joseph Smith had uh, several seer stones. Um, you want to go to the next slide? I happen to have gotten a seer stone. I don't know if you can see that, um, but he had five seer stones. So these were not uncommon and just uh, during that time. Uh, he acquired the first one when he was about 14 years old uh, by looking through Sally Chase, who also had a, uh, a, a seer stone. He went and looked through her seer stone to see where he could find his own seer stone. Uh, he acquired the second one in 1820, but the most famous one and the brown one that we see most of the time uh, he, that he used to translate the plates in the Book of Mormon, but he also used it to treasure dig. He found that in 1822 while digging a well uh, on Willard Chase's property. Interestingly enough, Willard Chase wanted the stone and Joseph said, well, can I just borrow it? And so Willard Chase allowed him to borrow it and he never gave it back, um, even when he asked for it back. So the seer stone was stolen, was a stolen stone. Um, in that time, almost everyone, not, not everyone, but lots of people had a seer stone. Uh, Joseph Smith had one, Lucy Smith, W.W. Phelps, Sally Chase, Lumen Walters, Hiram Page. Lots of people had these seer stones. It was just like Oprah. You get a stone, you get a stone, you get a stone. Everybody had a stone. Um, the same stone that he used for finding treasure, he used to find the plates and the Book of Mormon, which is quite, uh, quite interesting. Um, Let's, let's go to the next, uh, let's skip the next slide just for time. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen, uh, Brad, uh, Brad Wilcox has a video and uh, look that up on YouTube where he describes the seer stone and says, oh, it's really not that unusual. It's just like a cell phone. Just like a cell phone is smooth and you can read text on it, you can do that on a seer stone. And just like when a seer stone, when you can't see in a cell phone because it's too bright, you would put it in your hat and you would shade it and so that you can read it. It's not that ridiculous to think of that. And so that's kind of the way they explain this seer stone as if, oh, it's common knowledge that anyone can look in a stone and see things and see the future and, and uh, talk with God and translate books. That's, that's uh, everyday occurrence. Um, so let's go, to the, let's go to the next one. Um, the, the, uh, the dagger, this is the tool that the Mars dagger that was owned by Joseph Smith uh, Jr. or Sr., sorry. Joseph Smith Sr. had this dagger, it's called the Mars dagger. And on it, this is a picture of it. It came from that same collection that uh, Rebecca talked about from the uh, Patriarch. Uh, on it was the, the words were inscribed Adonai on the blade, which is necessary when you're looking for treasure. Uh, also included on it was the Mars symbol, which was Joseph Smith Sr.'s governing star uh, with uh, Scorpio in between. What he would do with this is he would inscribe out on the dirt, he'd sit and he'd, he'd make circles. And with those circles, they're, they're magical circles. And you can see there on the picture on the left, uh, an example of what they draw out. So what would happen is the scryer would take his stone, put it in his hat, he'd look, he'd say, oh, there's a treasure over there. He'd guide him to where the treasure was. Then they take the magical knife or a sword and they draw these circles. This was to contain this, the, the uh, treasure so the treasure couldn't escape. And then they, drew, they uh, tapped these uh, birch poles in all around it 
uh, to, to basically make a pen so the, so the treasure couldn't escape. Because obviously when they start digging, uh, the, the, treasure, uh, the treasure would usually have a treasure guarding and the treasure guarding would make it move in the ground. And so by doing this, the treasure couldn't move away from them so that they could get the treasure. Unfortunately, if you broke any of the rules, the treasure got away and, and uh, that's what always happened is they'd get real close and then they'd break a rule and the treasure would get away from them. Um, if you look at the little circle, you'll see off to the sides there, there's some little marks off of each of the birch stakes there. Uh, they just look like little tick marks and different things. We're gonna see those in, in a few minutes. We're gonna see this in several different places as we go forward. Okay, next slide. The next thing uh, was what's called a, 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 a grimoire. And uh, these are, were basically magical texts or a spell book. Uh, they still are around today. The most famous one is Barrett. I was able to, oops, I was able to buy one. Uh, and you can see the Magus is still around. Um, we know that Joseph Smith used this because a lot of the symbols that he used and a lot of the things that they did are only found in the Magus. So we know that that was used, but he also used uh, books by Sibley. Um, these books, uh, it was interesting. I started thumbing through it. They include instructions on how to create magical items like a talisman, how you create one. They have spells and incantations, specifically how do you get treasure or how do you call upon treasure? Uh, also how to summon or invoke supernatural beings such as angels, spirits, and deities. You wanna go to the next one? Okay, the next one is a talisman. Uh, and the talisman is, this is something that Joseph Smith carried with him. Uh, they often referred to it as a mosaic medallion, a medallion because nobody really knew what it was. Um, until until very late when uh, when the guy from uh, that was the institute director uh, uh, talked about it in like 1974. The thing with the talisman is it can only be created during an elected time when the planetary force is particularly potent, such as Jupiter's in Sagittarius. And what they are is they're a physical embodiment of the virtue of a particular planet or star that imbues the wearer of that virtue. Joseph had a Jupiter talisman because Jupiter was his guiding uh, star. And the intent of it was to produce intelligent energy animated by an angel or an intelligence who rules the celestial article. So the word intelligence is actually a word that was used in magic to describe uh, the, the planetary functions. Uh, we read about the intelligence in Abraham, and that's uh, more than likely that that came from this magical worldview. I believe this is really, as I looked at this, I think this thing really worked. Um, if you had it, uh, it uh, Jupiter talisman, the power of the ancient magic guaranteed the possessor of its talisman the gain of riches and favors and power and love and peace and to confirm honors and dignities and counsels. That sounds like what happened to Joseph Smith, but specifically on this, uh, he has a Hebrew table. If you see on the, the one on the right there, uh, the Hebrew table uh, had incantations that had uh, Hebrew numbers, letters in them, and each Hebrew letter has a number associated with it. Whichever way you added them, up, down, diagonal, it always added up to 34. And if you added them all together, it added up to 136. And you can see 136 is actually on the medallion there. If you look on the right, you see that uh, the cross of Jupiter, the orbit of Jupiter, the sign of Jupiter, uh, that little number that looks like a 24, that is the sign of Jupiter. As we go through, look for that sign. You're gonna see that in several of the other parchments and different things that come on. But the reason I say I think this worked is because if you became proficient at the table of Jupiter, uh, you would be able to get the power of stimulating anyone to offer his love to the possessor of the talisman, whether from a friend, a brother, a relative, 
or even any female. I think this thing worked for Joseph probably. Um, let's go to the next slide. The last one is uh, magic layman's. Uh, these are parchments and what would happen is uh, they carry these in a pouch like this and you saw the the pouch in the in the previous uh, slide that Rebecca had but he'd carry a parchment and this parchment would have drawings on it and these are these are the three uh, parchments that the, that the Smith family had you'll and and as we go through these I want you to to, to focus on how these might tie into the temple uh, because you'll see elements of the temple show up in these parchments um, the first one is called the Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah parchment. And the reason it's called that, if you look at it closely, you'll see the name Jehovah repeated three times, multiple places in this parchment. The purpose of this parchment was it was an, it was a, a amulet to, to uh, protect against evil spirits. So someone would wear it to protect against evil spirits. Uh, of course, repeating the name of deity three times is a very popular thing in, in temple ordinances. The other one is St. Peter bind them. Again, St. Peter and the binding power is another uh, temple uh, idea that, that we see there. And the, the purpose of this one was to protect its owner from supernatural beings. And the last one uh, is, the, is the holiness to the Lord parchment. And this is the holiness to the Lord parchment. And if you notice uh, on it, you can see um, some of the symbols that I talked about. I'm trying to point to these. Uh, but uh, you'll notice like right here, this looks like the circle that we saw earlier for the treasure digging. You notice the signs on the end of, this, of the post. These, these were known as earth, uh, earth symbols. And then in addition, uh, there, there's a lot of symbolism on here. A lot of them come from different occult books so they can kind of track where these came from. The middle one is the Star of Raphael. This was used to call upon uh, a, a, an archangel or, or an angel. And then uh, down here in the corner is, uh, this is called a tetragrammon. It has the name Adonai in it, which is was needed to call upon a treasure, uh, uh, a treasure guardian. And you can't see it in the picture behind me, but on the picture here, you'll see four stars in each of the corners, uh, four pentagrams. Pentagrams were required in order to call to call a supernatural being in. And so these were all parchments that uh, that uh, Joseph Smith had, or the Smith family had, and owned. The church owns them currently, and nobody's allowed to see them. Uh, not sure why. These were copies of these were made in the 70s when they still belonged to the uh, uh, patriarch. But since the church now has them, and and we have no real good photographs of them, that's why they're so uh, so poorly detailed in this. Okay, let's go to the next one. So let's let's move on to. Uh, to uh, the story here. We all know it. We all have seen the official narrative. We all know what happened here. Joseph Smith, 1805, born in Sharon, Vermont. 1820, we hear the humble boy who prays to know what church is true because of all of the different uh, denominations that were out preaching in, in his neighborhood. And he was confused, didn't know which church to join. Uh, as an answer to his prayer, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him and they told him that he's to join none of the churches, but there'd be a special uh, calling for him to, to, to move forth and to go forward, and that he would know in due time what that was. 1823, he's visited by the angel Moroni, who tells him of the buried gold plates that he will bring forth into the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith isn't allowed to see these. Um, He's not, he's not allowed to receive these at this time. He has to wait four years, but every year he goes back uh, to, the, uh, to the same place to meet with the angel 
and to uh, get updates until he's finally in 1827, he's allowed to receive the plates. Um, he receives the plates, they translate them, they lose 116 pages. And then uh, in, in 18, that uh, they take the, the plates are taken away from him for a season and then finally given back to him in 1829. In 1829, the Book of Mormon is translated. And uh, in 1830, the Book of Mormon is finally published and the church is established. That's the story that we all grew up on. That's the story that we all love and know. The problem is it didn't happen anywhere close to this. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at how did it really happen or what really happened with the magical components behind it. And I gotta tell you, this gets really strange. You can't make some of this stuff up. It, it gets really strange. <laughs> so first off, um, Joseph Smith, 1805, he's called of God. Uh, he's called of God right from his birth. You can see in this picture, this is called a, a call. This is when a baby's born with part of the placenta over their face. And uh, in, in magical worldview, that's an important thing. If you're born with a call, it means you're either going to be a great sailor because you can't, be, you can't drown or you're gonna be a great seer and you're gonna have great psychic powers. Well, for a treasure digger like Joseph Smith Sr., this was incredible. This was incredibly good luck. He had a seer as a son. And in a letter to, uh, to the Vermonters, Joseph, that some Vermonters wrote to Joseph Smith Jr., they described what his father said when he was born. He said, you was old enough when you left here to remember a great many things about him and how he used to tell about your being born with a veil over your face and that he intended to procure a stone for you to see all over the world with. So Joseph Smith Sr. intended to get a seer stone for Joseph Smith Jr. from the very time that he was born, and he, pre he predicted him to be a seer right from the beginning, right from his birth. Joseph Smith was born and raised to be a seer. The next slide. So this is a uh, preparation for uh, for becoming folk, uh, for be for getting uh, to the point where he became a prophet. In, uh, in Rolling, Roughstone Rolling, Bushman actually calls it the preparatory priesthood. He actually calls all of this magical training the preparatory priesthood. It was, in, it was to prepare Joseph to receive, the, uh, uh, to receive this power and this great uh, calling that he had. And to do it, he used magic to prepare him for it. Um, from his youth, he, as we said, he started using a divining rod from when he at age 13, 11 to 13, and by age 14, he had obtained a seer stone. Uh, at about this very same time, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and his older sons began operation of a group of money diggers, and Alvin, the older brother, was reportedly the, uh, the leader of this group, this money digging group. And there's a very cool story about a guy named Lumen Walters that most of us have probably never even heard of. Um, but he's one of the great figures in church history that you've never heard of. So Lumen Walters was an eccentric uh, physician who actually came from a fairly wealthy family. He moved to uh, Europe. And while he was in Europe, uh, he, he practiced medicine, but he also learned the occult. And he learned very, uh, he learned to speak Latin. He learned all of the occult practices. And uh, after he came back from Europe, he, he moved into the Palmyra area. Between 1819 and 1822 is when he moved in. And he became known as the village magician. And if you lost a cow, you lost a horse, you'd go to him and he'd tell you where it was at. 
Well, he also was a leader of treasure digs. He was a scryer. He could look in his hat. He had a seer stone. He could see where the treasure was. Young Joseph would go out on these treasure digs with his father, and he would see uh, Walter the magician uh, doing these, these uh, treasure digs. And one of the things he did is um, uh, he, he started to learn from him how to do this. And Luma Walters found a book. It was a book that was in a reformed language. It was actually old Latin. And he would read the book to, to them as they would dig. And then he'd translate it. And he would tell them about a, a story about ancient American people who lived on the continent. And this was the manuscript that he would read as they would dig, the, dig for these treasures. Uh, Lumen actually took Joseph kind of under his wing and mentored him into becoming a seer. And one one day they're in a uh, they they started digging uh, in Abner Cole's property. Uh, he led a treasure dig, and this is where they really got to to know each other. But later on, they moved and they started digging in a specific spot that was rumored to have treasure, and that specific spot was what we now call the Hill Cumorah. They started digging in the Hill Cumorah for treasure in about 1822, and they couldn't find anything. One day in a tavern, uh, Lumen Walters said, geez, I just can't find anything, but there's one in here who can, and pointed to Joseph Smith. And at that point, Joseph Smith kind of had his calling that he was going to be uh, the new magician in Palmyra. Um, Lumen Walters had a, a stuffed toad, uh, he do in incantations. He's also probably the person who created the parchments that we saw. He had the knowledge, he had the occult knowledge to draw those, to make them. And, uh, and, and so many people think that he's the, the person who drew those lumens. Uh, interesting enough, his name, when he was in Vermont, he went under the name Layman. And he also had an uncle whose name was Lemuel. So if you learn nothing else today, it's probably that Nephi and Lehi's last name is probably Walters. Yeah, so something you can learn. <laughs> so uh, after he left uh, Palmyra and he kept coming back, he moved to a place called Sodus. He kept coming back to Palmyra, but uh, uh, when he left, Joseph became known kind of as the village magician and people started going to him. And this was kind of the launch of his, tre uh, tre his treasure digging and where people started to come to him. Go to the next slide. So treasure digging years. Uh, over, over the uh, length of the time that he did treasure digging, one thing needs to be understood. This was their primary job. The family were treasure diggers. They did other things to make money. They did not farm. You see that in all the church things. Their farms always folded because they never grew anything. They were always out doing these treasure digs, and they never made any money at it. So they were poor as dirt. Um, so you can kind of see here that basically they started treasure digging. He started around 1819 probably, and the treasure digs continued on to 1828, which is quite fascinating because 1827 is when he got the plates and he's still treasure digging after he got the plates. But one interesting thing in here is, is that uh, uh, he began treasure digging at the Hill Camorra in 1822, and they were still treasure digging right up till 1827 on the Hill Camorra. Even after the angel had came and told him that this was gonna that there were uh, plates there, he continued to look for them uh, and and dig them up. So let's go to the next. Uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to. Uh, this is just some of the treasure digs that he did. That he he participated in at least 18 treasure digs over the the time that he was treasure digging. Um, let's go to the next one. 
so now we get to the, the visit from the angel. And this one is, is really fascinating, the, the uh, visit of the angel. This is one that I think is, is very difficult to, to pinpoint. Uh, and you might say, why are you starting with the visit from the angel? Why not start with the first vision? Well, firstly, because we know absolutely nothing about uh, a first vision. There's nothing written about it. He doesn't record it. No one in his family records it. Nobody hears anything until 1832. Um, I talked to uh, 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 Melanokas, who wrote uh, Counterfeiting, and asked her about this. And she said, well, they were such liars, you can't believe anything they said. She didn't believe that there was even the angel, angel visit in, in September of 1823. So I started looking into that, and I said, eh, I, I don't know if I agree with that, because there's a difference here. In 1820, he couldn't tell you when he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. Can't tell you when the first vision happened. But he tells you exactly when the angel thing happened. It happened on September 21st, 1823, as he was praying at 11 p.m. at night. We know exactly when this happened. So I believe something happened in this time frame. Did it happen the way he said? I don't think so. Some of this is going to be supposition, but I'll tell you where, where the facts are and where I back it up. Many people believe that the visit from the angel in September 21st, 1823, was actually the first vision. All of the prophets that refer back keep referring to an angel that visited him and not God the Father and Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to share something with you here in just a second. Um, but uh, Melinda, you want to go to the next next slide? I want to tell you uh, why I, I think this uh, happened or at least why he thinks it happened. We go back to the layman that we discussed. This layman was probably prepared in September of 1823 because it had to be prepared at a very specific time. You could only prepare the layman when certain stars were in certain places, and September of 1823 was one of those time periods. Um, additionally, the purpose of this was to call upon supernatural beings and was to help people in locating a, a, a treasure. If you remember, Joseph Smith was digging on the, on the Hill Cumorah uh, all the time during this. September 21st, 1823, we know he was on the Hill Cumorah doing a treasure dig. He supposedly that night is when he had the division from the angel. And that would be the most propitious time for a divine visitation was during a full moon at the autumnal equinox on a day ruled by Jupiter, which was Sunday, which is the day this was, uh, with Joseph Smith's ruling planet ruling the sky, which would have been at 11 p.m. So the exact time that he said that he was praying was the exact time that he should have been at seeking a treasure guardian to come and show him where that treasure was on that hill. He claims that a messenger appeared three times during the night to him, which is important because in folklore magic, a dream dream three times was going to come true. Um, also, the parchment had two sills on it, those round sills that we talked about, which are earth symbols. They guaranteed that once the, the treasure angel appeared to you, that you would engage to bring him the most precious of their jewels and riches within 24 hours. So within 24 hours, he was going to be shown where this treasure was. And we all know that's exactly what happened when the angel came the next day he went to the, uh, to the site. Now, um, I want to read to you. This is, uh, I, I came across this just yesterday, and this is William Smith. This is what he said. This is his version of the, of the first vision. And, and I want you to capture a couple things on here. Uh, th think about what he says here. 
he describes the first vision. This is about, uh, he was 70 years old, but he would have been Joseph's younger brother. Uh, but the family was actually involved in this. He says, while engaged in prayer, a light appeared in the heavens and descended until it rested upon the trees where he, Joseph Smith Jr., was. It appeared like fire, but to his great astonishment, did not burn the trees. An angel then appeared to him and conversed with him upon many things. He told him that none of the sects were right, but that if he was faithful in keeping the commandments, he should receive the true way should be made known to him, that his sins were forgiven, etc. A more elaborate and accurate description of his vision, however, will be found in his own history. Now, this is the important part. The next day, the angel again appeared to him and told him to call his father's house together and communicate to them the visions he had received, which he had not yet told to anyone. After we were all gathered, he arose and told that how did the angel appear to him, what he had told him is written above, and that the angel had also given him a short account of the inhabitants who formerly resided upon the continent, a full history of whom he said was engraved on some plates which were hidden and which the angel promised to show him. All of us therefore believed him and anxiously awaited the result of his visit to the Hill Cumorah in search of the plates containing the record of which the angel told him. So his account of the first vision says that the first vision happened the day before he went and got the plates. And he's, he's describing it as he was out in the trees. I believe he saw this vision when he was out treasure hunting that night uh, on the Hill Cumorah looking for these, uh, for these plates that he saw this vision then he went home, told all of his brothers who were a treasure digging family. They were all excited. We're going to get the treasure. We know where it is. And the whole family was now engaged actively in pursuing and getting these plates. Um, can't prove it, but there's a lot of, lot of history there that says that, that, that that's what's happening. So let's go to the next, uh, the next one, Melinda. This is the fascinating story. So uh, we, get to the, we get to the story where... Um, uh, Joseph goes up to get to get the plates for the first time. And uh, <laughs> this story is just crazy. He goes up there and uh, in the in, in 1827, uh, he told uh, Willard Chase what happened. Uh, this was Joseph Smith Sr. Re recounting what happened. He said that some years ago, a spirit had appeared to Joseph, his son, in a vision and informed him that a certain place there was a record on plates of gold and that he was the person that must obtain them. And this he must do in the following manner. On the 22nd of September, he must repair to the place where was deposited the manuscript, dressed in black clothes and riding a black horse with a switch tail, and demand that the book in a certain name and after obtaining it, he must go directly away and neither lay it down nor look behind him. So they got Joseph all dressed up in his black clothes and he got up there um, and he was able to, to find the book. And uh, he took the book out and he turned and laid it to the side um, so that uh, uh, he could put the lid back on this box that he said he found. And he says that he again opened the box. At, at, well, when he, when he turned around, the plates had disappeared uh, again. So he turned back to the box and he says, as he again opened the box and in it, he saw the book and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. He saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man. So there's a toad in the box, which is folklore magic that, a treasure guardian often appears in the shape of a um, of an animal, and so this is an animal protecting the the treasure, which is just ridiculous because we all know that people and animals don't trans transmute in between each other and just turn from one thing to another. So, in in the end, he he gets a a, a toad and he uh, 
the toad, uh, he tries to take the plates and the toad takes him and strikes him on the side of the head, knocks him out, not being discouraged at trifles. He again stooped down and strove to take the book when the spirit struck him again and knocked him three or four rods and hurt him prodigiously. After recovering from his fright, he inquired why he could not obtain the plates to which the spirit made reply, because you have not obeyed your orders. He then inquired when he could have them and was answered thus, come one year from this day and bring with you your oldest brother and you shall have them. This spirit, he said, was the spirit of the prophet who wrote this book. So this toad was Moroni. <laughs> the toad turned in, into a man, Moroni, who started boxing him and knocked him to the ground and then told him, next year you'll get him, bring your brother Alvin. And so that's what he does. He goes home, he gets Alvin and uh, tells, him, tells the family, as we just read here, all about his experience. So the family's excited. They're going to go and they're going to get to go and see, um, uh, they're going to get to go and find this treasure. Well, there's a problem. Alvin dies two months later. Um, let's go to the next slide. So the next year, he's supposed to go and get the slides, but there's a problem. Alvin's dead. What do you do when Alvin's dead? How do you get him there? Well, the family kind of goes back and forth. What do we do? How do we get him? Uh, so the time comes for him to go up to, 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 to visit with the angel again, and they, they don't have any way to get it. But when Alvin died, the last thing he said, if, if you remember your LDS history, is, oh, get the plates, whatever the cost, make sure you reveal this. I think he really said, make sure you get the plate, get the treasure. You got to get the treasure. You know, this is the family business. This is what they've done, whatever the cost. Well, so the family, um, no, no definite uh, known that they did this, but they seem to have dug up Alvin. They either dug him up to take part of his body and bring it there, or they took Alvin's whole body and brought it there. Now, uh, the, the church claims, no, they never took him there. And, and uh, the, the, the interesting part is here on the right, you see that Joseph Smith Sr. took out an ad in the local paper trying to explain that they had not dug up nor dismembered their son and that it was just wicked rumors that they had dug up their son. And in order to prove it, they dug up Alvin to show that he was still in the grave. And then they reburied him, posted this on September 25th and said, Nope, Alvin was in there. We checked. We know he's there. Well, that's certainly convenient that it happened exactly at the same time that he was supposed to show up on September 22nd at 2 a.m. in the morning. They bring him back the 23rd. They bury him again. Now the ground's been disturbed. Everyone can see the ground's been disturbed. There's rumors that they dug him up. So their answer is, no, no, no. We dug him up to make sure he was there because you guys started all these rumors. I mean, how crazy is it to post in the newspaper that you didn't dig up your son. Something <laughs> happened there that led to this, uh, but that's uh, that's what happened. And so now it didn't work. They brought Alvin. The angel said, try again next year. Okay, go to the next one. So the next year uh, he comes back. And once one thing that happened in 1824 that we need to understand is this is the first time there's a revival in Palmyra, uh, recorded uh, uh, thing. So Palmyra starts getting hit in 1824 by this religious revivalism. So that starts in 24. He's already on this path. 1825, he, he decides Samuel Lawrence is the right guy to bring. Another name most of us don't know. Samuel Lawrence was another seer. Um, and so uh, Joseph takes, takes him out and he shows him where the plates are. And the two take their hats, they take their stones, and they start looking into the ground and they start comparing as seers would tend to do. 
And he says, oh, do you see him? And of course, you, you're the other seer. You got to say, yeah, yeah, I see him. And he says, oh, yeah, I see him. Oh, do you see anything with the, with the plates? And Joseph goes, no, I don't see anything else with the plates. He goes, oh, oh, look again. So Joseph takes out the plates. He looks again. And lo and behold, uh, he can't see anything. And so Samuel Lawrence says, oh, no, no, there's some spectacles with the plates. Don't you see the spectacles? So Joseph looks again. And this time he says, oh, oh, I can see the spectacles. And so this is where the, the spectacles come into the whole story. They weren't there when he went there the first time and took him out with the toad. But now they appear there because him and Samuel Lawrence are, are comparing stones and decide that uh, one of them's better than the other. After that, Joseph said, oh, this Samuel Lawrence is the wrong guy. Uh, get rid of him. I got to find somebody else. So go to the next one. 1826. 1825, he meets the girls of his dreams. He goes on a treasure hunt. He's, he's hired by uh, Isaac Hale, goes and gets the goes and searches for a treasure. He lives with, uh, with Isaac Hale. And through Samuel Lawrence, he meets, uh, he meets uh, Lucy Hale. Um, they dig. They don't find anything, of course, and he leaves. Uh, go to the next one. So the next, the next year, uh, from the time that he leaves, uh, he went to do that treasure hunt with uh, Josiah Stoll. And in 1826, something important happens. Uh, Josiah Stoll's nephew takes him to court and says, this guy is a fraud and he's stealing all the money from my uncle. And so Joseph goes to trial. At this time, he had about 18 treasure digs and he goes to trial. The church tried to say this trial never happened, but they now found the receipts you can see up in the left-hand corner of the, of the trial. And they've also found transcripts of the trial. Now to Give you an idea what these treasure hunts look like. You see on the left those those holes. This is actually one that the Smiths dug. This was on Miner's Hill when they were looking for gold furniture. And so these are big holes that they're digging. Uh, but that people would they tell them treasures on your land and you can we'll dig it, we'll find it, and then we'll split it with you. You just need to pay the cost to 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 find it. And so they take these people for money when they did this. Um, interesting enough, he's. He's basically, it's, it's clear that he's done this. Uh, he's considered a disorderly person for juggling. And at the trial, Joseph Smith Jr. testified, and he said both he and his son were mortified that this wonderful power, which God had so miraculously given him, should be used only in search of filthy lucre. He said his constant prayer to his heavenly father was to manifest his will concerning this marvelous power. He trusted that the son of righteousness would someday illumine the heart of the boy and enable him to see his will concerning him. Well, the court found him guilty and they let him go on what's called leg bail, which is basically get out of town and we won't press any charges. We won't put you in jail, but never come back. If you come back, we're going to put you in jail. Well, this scared Joseph because now he's convicted. He sees that he can't continue on as a treasure digger because everyone's starting to realize that the con's up. He's been in all these different places. People know they're conning him. And so at this point, this is a key turning point, this trial. Everything changes in 1826. Um, go to the next slide. First thing happens in 1826 in September, William Morgan disappears. If you remember, William Morgan is the Masonic person. So at this time, you've got a religious revival going on, and all of a sudden you get this political divide with the Masons and the anti-Masons. So the anti-Masons uh, uh, movement starts to begin, and so you've got at this very time that this is happening, you've got a religious movement and a political movement happening, and Joseph Smith takes advantage of this. Uh, the, 
he, he goes to the hill in 1826, he says, and the treasure angel tells him he must do right or never get the plates. He, he's got one more chance. So he looks in his stones and he sees that Miss Wright is Emma Hell and that he must marry her. And so at this time he starts transforming himself from treasure digger seer to what if we start a church? You saw on the slide that, that uh, Rebecca showed all those churches that were forming. And he get, they get this idea, let's start a church. Um, and at this time, he starts transforming himself. So part of that is I got to get a woman. I got to get a, a bride. I've got to look legit. And so he has to go and marry someone. So he goes down and he visits. Uh, he tries to get um, uh, Emma to be his bride, but his, her father keeps re refusing. Evidently, in the year, he's recognized that he's a sham and he, he doesn't like Joseph. But in 1827, Emma gets invited to Samuel Lawrence's place, the other seer, who's also looking for this treasure. And uh, he convinces her to elope with Joseph, which they do. And they elope and they're married and uh, they're off on business. So now he's got his bride. He's got the person he sure has to get the plates. It's time to get the plates, 1827. Uh, let's go to that. So what's wrong with this picture? Um, Joseph and Emma departed on September 22nd at 2 a.m. because that's the time that you have to go and get these treasures is it in the middle of the night. Again, they were all dressed in black. They had a black buggy and a black horse. They took this from Josiah Stoll, who was staying with the Smiths, who was in the area because he was treasure digging on that very same hill that night and had come to stay at the house. And then they took his horse and went and got the, the treasure. Um, also, Lumen Walters had been looking for the treasure on the same hill just days previously. He'd been out digging. Uh, uh, we, Brigham Young tells us that. He fulfilled every requirement that he had to to get the treasure in 1827. And we're told that he met the angel and that the angel gave him the plates. Sort of. If you remember, he didn't come back with the plates. He put the plates in a little hollow log. He came back and said, oh, yeah, I've got the plates. They're in a hollow log. Don't worry, Emma. I've got them. Um, I can look in my hat and see that they're safe. So he puts them in a hollow log and he comes back later to get them uh, when he's by himself. Uh, Vogel thinks that uh, he hadn't finished making the plates, the, the pseudo plates that he was going to use to fool everybody, and that he was trying to finish that up. And when he did, he dislocated his thumb. And that's why you get the story about him running back with the plates and everybody knocking him down. And he had to run away with the plates and there was a big fight. And that's how he justified that he dislocated his thumb. Interesting theory. Don't know if it's true. But uh, at some point later, he got the plates and he brings them. Okay, go to the next, next slide. And so now we go to the translation process. And here's our uh, beloved leader, President Nelson, telling us how this process worked, which may be different than you've heard before. Oh, Melinda, your audio isn't working. Probably when you reshared, your audio went out. Um, We'll, we'll go away from that. But basically what he said is, um, he says, again, that Joseph, it, it's kind of funny because he puts the hat up to his face and he said, oh, yeah, Joseph used a stone. The Book of Mormon is mainly sitting here on the on the side and you can see it in the video. It's wrapped in a cloth. You can't see the plates. They're hidden all the time. And he's translating with his head in a hat uh, looking at these uh, at these items. And he acts like it's perfectly normal and that everybody knew this story the whole time. It's just amazing as he tells the story, like, oh, yeah, you should know that. And the lady just sits and nods and goes, yes, president. Yes, that's so true. 
Uh, it, it just, I do it's have just, it if you want me to try. The what? I do have it fixed now if you want me to. Okay, go ahead, play it. This really, through the gift and power of God, we have a lot of suggestions about how it was done. We know that they had a table like this. They know they had the golden plates covered usually, and Joseph used these, uh, the Urim and Thummim seer stones in, in the hat, and it was easier for him to see the light when he'd uh, take that position. To me, it's like having my mobile phone at my hand, and, and I can get messages on it that you can't see. That's true. Uh, and they had nothing like that. So it's just the gift and power of God. So there you have it. Uh, just that's the story as I grew up with it. I don't know about you guys, but that's the story. So, um, so I'm I've got two more things. I know we're running over time because of our problems earlier. So uh, I, I want to just cover two uh, two two last things here. Um, the, the Book of Mormon's translated. He takes it to the printer. And then there's this interesting story about this guy named Abner Cole. And Abner Cole is the one that they did the treasure dig on. And Abner Cole also produces the local newspaper. And so when they take the transcript to be published, he takes it and everyone's reading it, or the publisher's trying to, and it's written so badly, he can't, he can't uh, do it. He has to do all this editing and fixing it. And so he tells Hiram, look, bring, bring me more of them. Bring him, bring him more of them at a time and give me several pages at a time, then at night I'll fix them. And then in the morning we can go ahead and start the printing and we don't waste all this time. So Hiram does this. Well, in the meantime, he leaves some of these at the, at the printer office and Abner Cole is using the printer office at night to produce his, his newspaper. And so Abner Cole comes in and he's reading this and he's reading the Book of Mormon. He gets the whole story and he starts publishing it in his newspaper. He publishes it in his newspaper and all of this happens. and. Uh, Hiram comes and says, no, 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 you can't do this. And Abner Cole finally gets, says, okay, I won't do this uh, anymore. And he stops producing it. But just after that, he, he writes a, a, a thing called the Book of Pukai. And this is a fantastic, it's the first satire of the Book of Mormon. And this is written by Abner Cole, who knows Joseph Smith. He knew Lumen Walters. He knew the Smith family. They dug on his property. He knows these people. And he writes the book of Pukei, which uh, still exists, and you can find it uh, uh, in uh, in the BYU library. And because of time, I'm not going to read it. Uh, but if you want to go on online uh, and look it up, look up the book of Pukei because it's it's a great satire. He talks about how uh, these uh, ignoramuses are digging on a hill with Walter the magician and the toads, and he he basically tells the story that is more accurate than the church than the story the church takes when he's actually just doing it in a, in a satirical manner. So it's a very funny look it up uh, the book of Pukei and, and read it. It's only two chapters long. Uh, there's only two chapters to it, but it's it's uh, it's a fun little read. You'll have fun. It's 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 worth the reading and, and laugh at it. OK, next slide. So the last thing I want to bring up is, um, you know, Joseph and his testimony. We know that he continued to do treasure digs even after he got the the, the, the plates. We also know that they went to uh, the first whole first presidency at one time went to Salem, Massachusetts and dug in a basement because someone told them there was a treasure there. And they got a revelation from God saying they'd get the church out of the uh, uh, out of debt. If they would go there, they'd find this treasure. Well, they never found the treasure, of course. 
And then now the church says, well, the treasure was the people. They converted people, and that was the treasure they were going after. But uh, uh, anyway, he continued his treasure digs. But, you know, he, after, after kind of 1827, you don't hear so much about the folk magic. He becomes more of a religious person. And that all came about because of that, those changes. You know, people were becoming more religious. He had to transform himself. He rebranded himself now as a prophet rather than a treasure digger seer. Um, did Joseph Smith ever give up his, uh, his past with this? Uh, the one thing I say is, uh, is I look at Joseph's last testimony. And Joseph's last testimony is he, as he went to Carthage. Um, and, and I like to look at actions rather than words. And this is the actions that happened is when after he burned the Nauvoo uh, expositor, they were going to take him to jail. They came to pick him up. They let him get anything he wanted. He got to talk to his people. Uh, he got to check in at a hotel when they went to Carthage. He had all the time in the world. He could do anything he wanted. Um, here was the prophet of God. He'd received the endowment. He had received the revelation about the endowment. And he went off to Carthage. And what did he take with him? Did he wear his temple garments? He did not. What he had on him was his Jupiter talisman. And if you look at the Jupiter talisman, it's interesting to note uh, that on there, there's these words. Um, the words that are the words that are printed on there are confirma odus potentissimus, uh, which means make me, O Lord, all powerful. And that is what he had at the time of his death. So I think it was obvious that he relied on the magic to protect him right up till the end, as opposed to uh, the priesthoods that he that he supposedly had access to. So uh, from that, I'll turn it over to Melinda and let her uh, take it from here. Okay, I guess I am. Um, so, welcome to my parlor. I hope we have a ball today. Uh, but I am going to be very conscious of our time now, and I'm going to skip most of my presentations. So, you guys are in luck. Um, we are going to be incredibly brief with these last few uh, slides and uh, move on to our uh, discussion portion because I know everyone probably has a lot of comments. So. Uh, first slide here was just a matter of seer stones. Uh, Quinn kind of mentioned that there could possibly be five seer stones of Joseph, uh, but there's a lot of inconsistency with that data. The first one for sure was the, the white one. That's the one that he used. Sally chases a green stone to find this stone. But um, just to point out, this white stone was used in the translation uh, process for the Egyptian papyri that became the book of Abraham. And then also, this was the part that I really didn't know, um, using the white stone, Joseph Smith stated that he um, got a grand key word of the temple endowment. And so um, that was something that I didn't know about the white stone. The second one is the green stone. So it's in black and white on the top. But I, I believe the bottom picture to that is also um, a, a picture of it or maybe a rep, a, a artist rendition of it. Um, this one, just to, to note, is that uh, it was purchased, actually. And be, uh, the person who owned it, his son, actually used it trying to find a missing child. But unfortunately, the child was um, found deceased uh, by the time they 
they were actually able to find him. And this stone was sold back in 1993 for $75,000. And it is currently in a private collection. Um, obviously, the next stone is uh, the, the brown stone that we're very familiar with. It's the one that the church has become uh, made known to the public, where many of the other ones, they don't know, uh, they aren't making them public. They aren't making them uh, with pictures readily available, anything like that. So many of the other things are speculation, I suppose, but there is some data to kind of back it up. Um, the sand colored stone on the bottom uh, uh, corner here, that was one that actually um, Emma passed on to her second husband. Um, and it was believed he might've had two similar stones that looked like that. And I believe it is currently in the Wilford C. Woodruff, or excuse me, Wilford C. Wood Museum. Um, and then the last one on the opposite side corner, this one is called the Mud Seer Stone. It was fashioned by, by mud, handmade, um, and apparently to those who possibly have seen it, there's still the indentions on it from the person who made it out of like a clay. Um, having myself been to Nauvoo, I think perhaps that um, it was maybe made out of the clay there. I, I mean, that makes sense to me. That is purely speculation on my part. Please don't get me wrong. Um, but interesting enough, um, while I was reading my section of the book, it was very confusing because there were there were um, parts uh, quotes from uh, people that Quinn put into his book, and like Brigham Young mentioned that Joseph found two stones in Nauvoo, but by description they didn't really match up to other stones. So, like I said, I I believe that there's probably um, a lot of data that that's just not correlating. So we don't really know. Um, again. Some of the data is saying that at least three stones are in the first presidency's uh, vault. Uh, Joseph was known to say that he felt that every man uh, who lived on the earth was entitled to a seer stone and should have one, but um, they are kept from them in consequence of their wickedness. Of course we are. Uh, of course, that bit Joseph in the butt because Hiram Page, uh, many, like Landon mentioned, uh, oh had their own personal seer stones, but Hiram Page was one of the most interesting to me because he started receiving revelation and claimed that it was revelation for the church. And so um, now Joseph had a problem, people were starting to question it. So of course, myth got a revelation and decided that because this stone was black, it was of the devil. And he um, convinced Hiram, excuse me, Hiram Page to destroy it and um, not just like throw it away, like pulverized it to dust. So um, nothing left of Hiram Page's uh, stone. Sorry, I am also doing my, my own slides here. So um, we were gonna go over components of the treasure dig, but we don't really need to, but just ironically, this is such a spir spiritual event, yet there is such similar to what we would call witchcraft and, and whatnot, the, the animal sacrifice portion really just took me by surprise. Um, moving on, there are also amulets were mentioned. Uh, this is also what Rebecca had mentioned that um, amulets were something that were not um, man-made where talismans were. Just a couple of examples up at the top there, that's a paper parchment 
some oftentimes used um, in your homes, you'd pull them up, stick them into like eaves or above doorways or whatnot. They were supposed to be able to protect the house against evil spirits. Just below that, hex signs. Um, that was something that was influenced by, I believe, uh, German immigrants and, um, you know, dating back very far. And um, I believe that often there are still in Utah on like old barns and whatnot, some remnants of hex signs. Uh, also here on my slide, there are horseshoes, which would be something that um, they felt were magical that could get, be given uh, protection. And um, as well as already mentioned, you could wear amulets being uh, that of a, a four-leaf clover or a rabbit foot. Uh, hair was also something that uh, was supposed to have um, either healing properties and or protection properties, which made a lot of sense because recently we went and toured in the uh, History Museum down in downtown Salt Lake City. And I, I thought it was really odd, especially from Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith, particularly, there were lockets of hair in all sorts of different things. And, and it's probably dual purposes. One, maybe they wanted a, a piece of him, other than I'm thinking he must have been bald by the time they buried him. Um, and then also could have been used for these protection purposes. Uh, one of the more famous ones that people might know about is the amulet that Brigham Young wore. Um, it was called a bloodstone. He used it um, primarily to, to actually wore it against his skin, but um, there are several pictures of it, like this one here, that he, he, he has it photographed him wearing it on the outside, but it was worn um, to, to protect him from harm. And in the Daughters of the Utah Pioneer, there's actually is displayed right now in Salt Lake. And um, this is what the, the little placard would say. It says the bloodstone is said to have been given to Thomas Brown by Captain Cook in the 1700s. The stone descended in the Brown family to 1851 pioneer, Mary Ann Wood Brown. She gave it to Brigham Young who carried it when going into unknown and dangerous places. So amulets all around. Uh, another thing that I didn't know about was, was what they called a mad stone. This was something that was handmade, often um, made again from hair or um, other things. It would be rough rather than smooth. It was said to have healing powers. And um, also there were specific rules to follow for um, medical or excuse me, medicinal aspects on this particular um, object that if you followed the rules, it would be helpful um, in, in healing aspects. Um, all right, so the next one is just a little bit tab on astrology, which is, you know, ironic. I don't think um, most, TBMs today would much to do about astrology, but that was something that was very important to the early saints. In fact, uh, they the uh, there was a lot of um, data showing like uh, a lot of the alman almanacs were presented. Obviously, farmers would use them. People were following their horoscopes, things of that nature. Um, so it was very. Um, very interesting to me. I, I wish I had time to kind of go into it, but one little thing here I would like to point out again, 
uh, Landon touched on it, dates were very important. So in the early saints, they did things on particular days because it would be Saturn rising or Jupiter rising or, or whatnot. And I don't personally would not claim that all to know much, much about astrology, but it has made me wonder if there might be some of this still currently in today's uh, Mormon religion. Obviously our leaders are very well aware of these kinds of traditions. So are we dedicating the new Layton temple down the street from my house on a particular day because it is something to do with astrology? I don't know, I'm just putting it out there. Um, and of course, um, astrology was also sh shown in design on buildings around specifically Salt Lake um, and the Salt Lake Temple, which I am still wondering if they will be removed once the Salt Lake Temple has been uh, completely redone uh, and made new and modern. Um, so lastly, as part of my section on the book, I just wanted to briefly talk about it was, it was very interesting to me. There would be um, data, you know, everybody's into it. We all love it. We're, we, we believe in uh, these healing properties, all this stuff. And then to be like, no, we can't do this. This is wrong. And then somebody else would be like, no, it's fine. Brigham Young would, no, I believe in astrology. I mean, it just went back and forth, back and forth constantly. Um, but over the years, they definitely started trying to distance themselves um, from that, and and this probably most of all is just a perfect example. Although the LDS headquarters denounced various forms of magic and the occult throughout the 1970s, the criticism became strangely silent after 1979. By the 1980s, published evidence was mounting of Joseph Smith's involvement in folk magic. So they realized at some point they were going to have to start fessing up to all of this. So. Um, in my research over not just reading my portion of the book, but I just was trying to find all sorts of just additional resources. Um, I've got a couple of podcasts that I, I think I'm gonna try and maybe put on Facebook or whatnot. Some, uh, there was one called Myth Vision that had uh, Blake, no, Bryce Blaken, no, I don't have it written down. He's the Naked Mormon. He came on, did like a 15 part series and they started out with magic. So that's why I kind of got hooked on that one. But the one that I want to talk again very briefly today, because I know we're completely short of time, but um, RFN did a fantastic one on magic specifically. And um, it's three parts, an hour each. I was going to try and talk about the first hour, but we're going to skip most of that. The, the basics that I want to point out there, there are, if you know, I don't know RFN. I'm just a fan. Do not get me wrong. But if you've listened to RFN, he dabbled in magic. He's the amateur magician. And so he knows a lot about it. He studied a lot about it. And he points out very much the similarities between a magic trick and what the um, current or even the past uh, church leadership has done. There's lots of things about misdirection. I mean, when he talked about the stone and the hat, was, which one was it about? Was it about the stone or was it about the hat? He wanted the emphasis to be on the stone because really the trick was in the hat. He pointed out that there is a theory that perhaps Joseph Smith had notes in the bottom of the hat that he could utilize for that session worth of um, the translation 
process that they'd be doing that day. And then the next day he'd switch out to some different notes. So while everybody was looking at the, 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 the stone itself thinking, oh, this is so wonderful. We've got the stone, we've got um, this power to be utilized. Yet the trick was really literally in the hat. Um, again, it, it was very fascinating. I, I will not take the time to go over it. I mean, he talked about um, the new name in the temple, patriarchal blessings, callings. Um, I mean, it just went on and on and on on how interesting you could really line up magic and the beliefs in the, the church today. Um, all right, so just moving on from there, um, I wanted to kind of end right here and open it up to some conversation. There's definitely current magic worldviews, right? We've got the Bermuda Triangle, the water witching, Bigfoot, palm readings, fortune telling. I mean, hello, look at me. I am Madame Melinda. Tarot cards, healing crystal, the eight ball. I mean, it just goes on and on of what people perhaps believe in, dabble in, or at least are aware of, even if they don't really believe in it. Well, likewise, the church has magical worldviews as well that are still today. We have our patriarchal blessings. We have blessings of healing, using consecrated oil, dedication of buildings and homes, personal revelation, prophet, uh, prophes prophetic, excuse me, prophecies, uh, the use of prayer, angels, e devils, evil spirits, goes on and on. Of course, we all know that garments were used for protection, um, our temple ceremony, Clothing, temple rituals, the three Nephites, Holy Ghost, repentance. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, we could spend an hour just on my portion of the book, I am sure. Um, but again, because we are short on time, I'm just going to wrap it up. I want to say, uh, you know, I have been the last speaker before in sacred meeting. And even though the bishop got up and told me, it's okay, Sister Brophy, go ahead and take as much time as you'd like. I was like, Hell no, nobody's going to be listening to me if we go over time. We are way beyond going over time. So we are just going to wrap this up. I hope everyone enjoyed reading the book as much as I did. And I hope we can have um, some discussion as long as people are, are able to stay on with us. So Rebecca, take Woo. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, we usually have our mix and mingle right now where we chat. Let's just chat real quick about the book. Um, I didn't get a chance to say before that um, if you want to make a comment, you can raise your virtual hand if that still works after all the hacking and everything that happened. But I'll throw a first real quick question out there. I read a Reddit post the other day where they said, why do so many um, post-Mormons seem to end up, or even nuanced Mormons, um, in the magical realm? Why do they suddenly discover tarot cards or they're interested in, does anyone have any thoughts on that? Why is it so attractive to people on the other side of Mormonism? Any thoughts? Oops, yes, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, when you're used to being in a magical worldview and culty stuff and you lose the one you believe in, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, I need to go to a different one. And I see that in my work with the ex-Mormon community, um, you know, alcohol, um, psychedelics, spiritualism, mysticism, and stuff. People tend to to go there. 
I have one friend whose uh, sister was a Scientologist, and now she's a devout Mormon. And we've, I've talked with them. It's just she needed a cult. You know, she left one cult and went to an, to another cult. That was just my thought. I think there's truth to that. So yeah, any comments about anything in the book? So let's let's talk and let's chat. It's such an interesting topic. Yes, Nancy. Yes, I love this book. I, it was one of the first things I read in my post-Mormon journey. Um, I don't think it's easy to get through. And as you already mentioned, Rebecca, I think that's because he is so thorough. Um, and you could tell from this edition that he is responding to things that have transpired in that decade or so since the first edition came out. So some of it I thought, and this would be more like blog posts in today's world, right? Like it, rather than a whole book. And now I'm going to debunk what some BYU professor said or respond to that. So it was um Sometimes I felt like I was, it was a slog to get through, but just so interesting. Um, the astrology piece, uh, I thought was interesting towards the end of the book. He talks about James E. Talmadge, who's, who was a Mormon scholar and a scientist. Was, wasn't he a scientist as well? Um, but he was taught astrology by his father and grandfather, which was really interesting. And into the 1970s, astrology was big among some Mormons, but then it just all, um, you know, it's like the, the lid is put on anything that's, that's different or unique. Um, but I also thought it was interesting that seer stones were used throughout um, the early church history, even to the 1920s, and that the church leadership became very just um, uncomfortable with spiritually independent women. And I think that has a lot to do as well with the idea of magic versus religion. If we do it, and the we is usually men, if you do, if we do it, it's religion. If you do it, it's magic. And the you is often women. Um, and so they, you know, historically branded witches, and other things because they were not going, these women, to not be under the power of that, that male um, hierarchy. Um, but I think too, the, the other thing I wanted to say was, um, now let me see, I have a note here. Oh, the Urim and Thummim, I was all, I remember being taught that these were um, some of the stones that were touched by the finger of the Lord when the brother of Jared came to him uh, to, you know, needed something to light the barges that were going to go from the old world to the new world and that they got buried with the, the golden plates. Then that they were put in um, some kind of, um, frame so that they could be used as glasses like the spectacles so i don't know there's a lot of different stories and i think it's just people trying to make sense of um where these objects came from right and uh it's so interesting too because we have lost as a society and especially as a church any notion of well pretty much any notion of a seer stone i'm sure there's still people who practice that 
but it's not in the common um, culture. And so I think of those, those historians that you talked about um, at the very beginning, uh, who just dismissed anything having to do with anything magical. It just didn't fit the framework, right? Um, but the one other thing, and then I'll stop, um, that somewhere in the book, it talks about there were three things that were passed from father to son from Adam, and that was the priesthood, astrology, and magic. And that's, and it, the Smith story just plays into all of those in a sense, right? Just fascinating. No, it isn't. All the early biblical leaders were also magicians. Solomon, David, Joshua, they all have, that's part of their resume, that they're magicians. So, and I like your comment about, I feel like energy healing and stuff like that is possibly, we can't have the, you know, we have power. We want to exercise power as women. So it's a whole, that's a whole different topic. Well, do you know, on that note, um, there was a conference talk maybe seven, six or seven years ago. I don't remember by who that was about energy. Part of it anyway, was about energy healing. And there's a, this has risen up a lot in Utah. I mean, you think about why do we have so many multi MLM companies in Utah that are related to health healing, yeah. right? Um, one of my first jobs in Utah was working for an herbal company. Um, and then we have all of these essential oil companies and different things. I think it's just another manifestation of this idea that there's something else out there that will have kind of a, it, it will heal or help our lives in a way that isn't, that's outside of the normal experiences. Yeah, I'm sure um, that's true. And as a woman, we can't access that in the church. So we're definitely right. attracted to things outside that are empowering and healing. Right. And so there's a lot of people in Utah, and I, I don't know if it's quieted down or not in Utah, but I know a decade or so ago, and then this, you know, I think in response, this talk that came out six or seven years ago in conference about energy healing, and a lot of women are attracted to that because it's something that they can do, um, do out of their home or go travel and visit people, have that, um, if they feel like they have a gift of healing, uh, yeah. And there was one prominent woman, I have no, I don't remember her names, but she had a, a booming business and she shut it down when that talk was given. Well, and look I it up thought, in the handbook. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, literally priesthood, yeah. did, did, priesthood, yes, energy healing, no. And the descriptions are about the same. So they're, they're almost they're exactly funny. the same. They're the very same. I know. Oh, thanks yeah. for all your insights, Nancy. Joe, you had a comment. Uh, yeah, so the two things I was thinking of is my daughter, when she left the church, she really embraced like the crystals and she was doing an Etsy shop and, and she really enjoyed that. And she found a lot of stuff in that. That was awesome. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I've, I've been through these stories now a couple times and it, it's just fascinating to me trying to understand like Joseph Smith's like he literally probably thought there was actually some plates. You know what I mean? He was going through these motions. He was doing these things, but there couldn't have been, you know what I mean? And then he went through and did the whole, let's put something together and hide it under a cloth. And at some point I feel like he must've just got frustrated with all the failures. And he's like, no, I'm going to make a success out of this somehow. But you know what I mean? Like if you went into the woods 
and you're sitting there doing your magic and stuff, what kind of mushrooms did you have to be on to go, oh yeah, here's some plates, man, look at this. And then the whole thing with Emma, she never got to see him the whole time, but he he brought him back and somehow got him on the carriage and somehow they took him back and home. I don't know. It's just amazing. And and as I've gone through this process of like deconstructing everything, you know, there are people out there that they just feel like, wow, how did I ever believe that? And it's like, yeah, it's we we did, you know. And and trying to look back in my life going, I don't know if I can put my finger on the moment that it clicked, you know, and even today things are clicking. Like when Landon, when all these talks going on, I'm like, oh yeah, there's all this stuff. Like you mentioned something about women running around naked. And then yesterday I heard something about Calamity Jane and she was running around naked, totally unrelated, but we have these experiences that like, wow, this was just a normal thing going on in life. And people are like trying to survive with it. Anyway, just amazing, uh, amazing presentation. I'm I'm now under pressure for the astronomy presentation. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I look forward to it. You guys are awesome. Thank oh, you so no, much. Good. No, there, and there's so much here. Like literally, we barely scratched the surface. You could take anything that anyone mentioned and just go and do a deep dive into it. It's just crazy. So, Jackie, I think you had a comment or a question. Maybe. Yes. Here we go. I just thought it was interesting. My husband and I are racking our brains, but in the early '90s the patriarch Eldred Smith came to our ward and gave that fireside. So I saw the bloody shirt. We saw the box that the golden plates were supposed to be in. There was definitely a peep stone. I don't remember which. And I'm so mad because I can't remember any more of them. I don't know if the parchments were there, but he was definitely on tour. Wow. And you could book him and um, and we could go look at them all. I mean, he didn't want us to touch them, but they were all on display and we could see them. So he must have been was, very elderly. Was he? I mean, he must. Have yeah. Been yeah. He was elderly, getting like elderly. Early 90s because he was. Um, maybe right? it was the sun. Maybe it was a sun. It could have been the sun because the sun is actually one that contacted Quinn and said, can you come meet with my dad? We want to talk about a book that promotes, you know, the power of the patriarch. And interestingly, that very year, 77 is when they did away with the patriarch. You know, we don't want that, yeah. that infighting, that power structure, no more patriarch. But the patriarch throughout history has been more powerful than the prophet in a lot of ways. So fascinating, Brian. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So um, this will be a quick comment. It just kind of was an overall thought I had as I was reading the book coming from my perspective as a science-minded thinker. But this whole era, this whole culture of people, this was kind of pre-scientific method, or at least very early scientific method. And they had their religious views, but then they didn't really have a way to navigate the world. And so, so from some people with this magical worldview this was their, their methodology. This was their, um, you know, the things that we do today, like in terms of medicine, we know work because we've studied them scientifically. But before that, uh, people had methods that uh, I wear this amulet on this day of this certain moon phase and my child is healthy. And the evidence was they had their biases, kind of expectation bias. And when something worked, it worked. And that was their scientific method. This was science to them. It wasn't incompatible with religion because it was just the way that they navigated the world before we had a scientific method to help us kind of navigate things in a more evidence-based manner. So um, I didn't really find it strange at all. This was all how the world was operating for centuries before kind of modern 
methodologies started to really advance kind of what we know about how things work today, but that's just how things worked for them. And it worked because they saw that it worked and that was evidence that it worked because they got the, a lot of times the outcomes they were looking for with their biases and said, hey, this worked, I wore this amulet and I didn't die, therefore I was protected, you know? So it, it was scientific for them. So that was all. No, I absolutely agree. And if anything, this book made me realize that the Smiths were on the extreme end of it, but it wasn't as unnatural or unusual as I thought, you know, it was, it was, it was in the paper every day. So, and so met with deity, you know, but on the flip side of that is everyone, I think a lot of current Mormons think all this was very special. These things happening to Joseph Smith and it wasn't, it was happening to everyone. So he was well, just right. And, and today, go. <laughs> yeah. And today like Mormons do the exact same thing, right? I'm well, I mean, I shouldn't like with priesthood blessings, you get yeah. a blessing and it works and someone gets healed and that's a very kind of magical thing, but like it works, someone gets healed and oh my goodness, this is, this works. Is that any different than um, wearing your amulet that worked to protect you or wearing your garments that protect you? Um, and the confirmation is when it works out, that's the confirmation that it worked because of this thing I did, not because my body just healed itself, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think most people are unaware of all those magical influences and history i was i put this on facebook but i was at hobby lobby yesterday looking for halloween decorations and i'm like where are they they're gone and i realized oh they never had them hobby lobby a christian store right yes so they don't want and i thought oh i have my slides on my phone i should just go up and say look here's jesus with a wand you can have halloween decorations or, or <laughs> rebecca you know you're you're dressed as a witch today like let's just imagine someone with an outside perspective watching two different things happen someone loses their keys and they kneel down and they're inciting an incantation in their mind. And then they get up and then they find their keys. Is that any different than you casting a spell? You know, you get down and you do your incantation as a witch and something happens. <laughs> no, it's glossolalia. I'm telling you everything. And that's why I'd like, if we had more time, we were going to try to list out and Melinda did on our slide a little bit, everything that still exists in the church today. That is magical. I mean, that sacrament prayer, those wizards have to get that right, or they're made mm -hmm. to do it over and over. That incantation has to be perfect, you know, even though those poor guys are crying, right? I call <laughs> them wizards, but Bruce, you had a comment. Yeah, I just, it it made me think of uh, what one of the first books we read in the book club, Sapiens, how he mm -hmm. described, you know, religion coming up to explain how the world works and also to provide a way and a structure for larger groups of people than just a hunter-gatherer group to work together. And I think that's gone on all through time. And uh, I, I know I was listening to um, John DeLynn interview Patrick Mason. And Patrick Mason admitted that, you know, he's a white cisgendered straight male. The church works for him. Well, not being, um, well, white cisgendered gay male, the church doesn't work for me. And it doesn't work for women. It doesn't work for people of color. It doesn't work for somebody who is more of a free thinker. I mean, in in um, Brian's comment about, you know, evidence-based things, um, you know, I I read and listen to a lot of stuff on being skeptical. And, you know, 
science and modern medicine don't necessarily always have the answer, but it's moving closer to the correct answer. And, um, and that's about the best I can figure we can do. Uh, the Mormon church and all the bullshit we were taught isn't that. So that was just my comment. No, I think that's, that's why this book is so fascinating. You can apply it in so many different ways and recognize yourself and recognize yourself as a Mormon, recognize yourself as a post-Mormon or a nuanced Mormon. And it just gives you this big picture of humanity and what we do and, and how we construct our narrative and maybe our myth. So um, do we have any more comments or shall we just be kind and let everybody go home? <laughs> Rebecca, so good to see you again. Oh, good. I'm glad hey. we had no comments. I could talk about this forever. So yeah, I'm I just have anybody that we, you know, had a hard time letting you in and vetted. I'm like, no, that's Rebecca. Let her in. So <laughs> sorry about <laughs> Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> Pass the litmus test. That was um, it. I just wanted to share about regarding your question, like why people go to, you know, the magical Things. I know for a lot of my um, post-Mormon friends, one of their big issues in leaving was the idea of a divine feminine God. And so I think, um, especially for females, when they leave and they're looking for that, it tends to take them to a place of like Mother Earth. And um, just like I have several friends that do like um, pagan or Wiccan type of rituals. And so they, they're they drawn to those, like the four seasons and nature and those kinds of things. And I kind of see that as a, a flip binary, right? From this man in the sky to the opposite of that, which is very earthly things and mother earth. So that was just what came to my mind. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful way to look at it. I think you do kind of turn more inward. You're trying to reclaim power maybe. And I love to, that's a wonderful way to look at it. I love it. So Paul, thank you for your help and advice at the beginning as we were trying to cast out the interloper. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. Um, I'm glad you did it and we didn't run away. Uh, and glad he got kicked out, whoever it was. Some uh, Desnat guy, I'm guessing. Uh, so... I have never, um, I've never done a tarot reading, but I'm a Patreon supporter of this um, guy I met at Sunstone, who is an artist who's doing a tarot deck. I have tarot cards. So, I can do it for you. So, so you would really like to, to check this out, I think. It's called the Mormon Tarot, and I think his name is Josh. Uh, he's a, a nephew of a coworker friend that I met there and he's doing such a good job of them all it's taking more than five years to to do them up but if you're if tarot has ever tickled your fancy uh I have never even read it but the artwork that he did I just really liked um uh, I think you could see a few of the of his first um ones I think he's gonna round it out and get it finished he's doing the entire thing you know the the big deck not just the the 20 or whatever the small version um, but is a lot the of them have this, this really behind me, I think. Is... Oh, sorry. Is, is it the yeah, same guy that's true. behind is me? This, this is his work, I think. He's making tarot cards. Oh, well, no, it's no. I, um, 
Unless that guy's name's Josh. Maybe there's another one. I don't know what his name is. I found him on Reddit because he posted that picture. And I said, can I use that picture to promote this particular episode of Book Club? And he said, yes, you know, attribute me on. And then everyone said, you need to make more tarot cards. You know, you need to. Oh, fine. Well, having two of them would be Yeah, I think so. They were trying to say that like Martin Harris would be the fool and Emma would be the high queen. It's fascinating. So someone's already done it. Now, what is that? What's that again? Well, so so he's still got a Patreon site of, um because i don't think he's finished the entire deck but okay but it it has a really um interesting feel to it for me i think that it aligns with the reason i still have interest in mormonism i think after getting to the other side of the anger and and upset and betrayal that you know they were seekers they were trying that to figure out life too and and um anyway a a small number of them knew that they were pulling off a hoax and the rest of everybody else were sincere lookers i think but uh this little book about magic that i got myself last christmas i get picture books for the kids um and i got one for me it had this uh, fun from the 1500s little similarity to the the layman picture stuff and it's just math and um this occultist guy named john d from the 1500s and he had a buddy named edward kelly and they just hung out together doing you know natural philosophy astrology stuff together and and talking to angels and um the more I see of other stories, the more I see it rhymes with the story of of Joseph and and what happened. But they were uh, so th- this was from John D. And um, they would look in crystals and see the future and things like that. Well, one night they're talking to angels, and the angel tells uh, tells them that they need to do uh, wife swapping for a night, and they did. And it blew up their relationship. It, Edward, Kelly, and John D. I think they couldn't really be friends after the angel t- told them this thing. But uh, how many other involved in that? Jeez. I mean, um, many other times you see a rhyming when people get into some of that. It's like uh, they're just channeling what they want to hear, and um, and it. It, it can take a while, but it get, can get to a creepiness level where, yeah, well, now we can't be friends anymore. And I, that's a little bit how, yeah, how yeah. It, it crossed the line, even though the, this, the, the, just learning about the, those stories from within our history or our shared experience in the past, um, you know, jo- Joseph Smith didn't come around asking, uh, my loyalty about my relationship with my wife but it crossed the line and when i read about that stuff uh that was done but the the book was just fascinating to read um my english teacher in high school told us all about it he said it was such an amazing book and and uh, i was in the middle of orem uh and had an english teacher talking about the book uh, and how cool it was. And I never got around to reading it because it kind of always felt a little scary um, until I was ready to look at the other side's arguments. And 
it was the first one that I read uh, after deciding, okay, it's time to stop pretending. And it just blew my mind how, how deep the rabbit hole goes. And even a bunch of art that you guys had for um, the presentation, I'd never seen that stuff. I didn't know that he was born um, with the, 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 call. the covering on his face with the what, what was it called a call called a call c-a-u-l -A -A so his calling uh was was from birth <laughs> yeah that is just incredible and amazing yeah. um anyway wow. i've talked too long thanks a lot no, what no, a wonderful that's awesome. and that's so interesting that was the first book that you read everybody has something and they're like i'm gonna figure this out so there you go yeah. lori you had a comment thanks for sticking with us through all the craziness i'm so sorry about that Jeez. yes first i want to publicly apologize to joe he was being so sweet and and being empathetic and i so appreciate that because i'm very new in my journey and i was just being silly but um Yes. So the other thing that I've realized, I've done a lot of researching to try to deconstruct because I am fairly new in this journey. And one thing that we were taught is that love is the spirit and they hijacked that feeling. So when we're out in nature and we have that appreciation or the love for, for nature or my children, like that's the spirit that's telling me that the church is true as opposed to just having love and trying to reclaim that. And I think that's why a lot of women in particular go to nature or mother earth or those things because it's actual love, it's just love. It's not anything but love. So, and then I have one question cause you guys have talked just a teeny bit about it. How do you get through the deconstruction? Am I doing it right? What? Uh, uh. <laughs> All right, everybody sit down for another three at four, three, should we? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I don't know. You just That's a keep, on, keep it on every day and you read. I'm not kidding. Reading is just a wonderful way to on your private time and and just study on your own and then find, you know, people that like to read the same things and talk. It really is a way just to do that. The, our philosophy here at the book club is now we know what we don't believe. Let's figure out what we do believe. And it's a great way to just read something and go, ah, I like that part, but not that, and throw it away. You don't have to invest. It's a time of just discovery and learning. And it doesn't all have to be dark. It can be positive. And, and just the fact that you arrived at this idea that love is love, nobody can appropriate it. Nobody can direct it for you or tell you what it is. Just trust your own feelings and intuition, I think. And everybody's so different. That's And there's so many different phases. So... And, Ooh, and you need community, and that's what this is all about, is yeah. building community. So and there's this other is why we started the book club. You can talk to. Yeah. Thank so, you. Yeah. This is my anyone first community. Here, anyone yeah. here, and I'm sorry it started out so horribly except, at the beginning. We usually don't Except for the weirdo swastikas. naked people. I was going to say, we usually don't have swastikas. <laughs> people wearing blue lipstick. Where, where so are, are you, Lori? Where, are you where on are you our located? Facebook page? Or? I'm, I'm not. I'll reach out to you. Anyone here would be more than happy to message with you or talk to you connect to you you know there's obviously there's going to be different people that you'll connect with more and anybody would ha be happy just to listen or to talk and that's what we're all here for to read and just have community like landon said so has, join has Lori, Lori, has she yes. introduced herself before have you told us I, where you is, are this is my first attempt <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I just want to. Where are you at? You don't have to tell us. We can I'm in. Ev no, I'm open. I've got my face on. It's fine. Okay. It's, um, okay. I'm in Evanston, Wyoming, and oh, okay. I think I'm the only female that I know of that's left. So, wow, I'm alone. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that Landon and Linda go to Evanston about every other weekend. They are adventurers, and they're always up there. So, like that horse betting. 
Yeah, yep, the horse back. Yeah, we've been in the horse races a while ago. Ring, yes. Yes. Anyway, we drag good time. Drag racing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we love having this. Jump on Facebook and let's connect because it is about community and that really helps. And and the 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 wonderful thing is that in the book club, people are at all different phases of it. Some have been out for 40 years. Some are just newly out and, and everybody's different in their journey. So there's always somebody that you're going to relate to or be able to learn something from something from or help someone else. So just, you know, please reach out Lori, We're all here to just talk. Lori, Thank next time by Evanson, we can go to dinner. Yeah, I Oh my gosh, that would be my dream. You guys were there like last weekend, right? Yeah, you guys, I'm feeling the spirit. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, the soon. love, the love. The triggered. All right, that's awesome. Bruce, you had a comment. Oh, this was just for Lori. I mean, in part, you know, I listened to a lot of Mormon stories and I was out listening to Jeremy Runnell's interview and it hit me very deeply. I'm going like, oh, it's all bullshit. You know, I mean, soup to nuts, there's nothing about the Mormon church. And I've kind of concluded nothing about religion at all that's true. But then I use the book. I mean, I've suggested and we've gone over books on DNA. I had a co uh, a friend I was walking with her. She's, you know, a lot of my friends in, in the village, some of you know, that is are you know, people from Caltech and Jet Propulsion Laboratories. And that's where I live. And uh, I was talking about my interest in DNA and they're going like, why? And I'm going like, well, I grew up in a high demand religion that said the earth is 6,000 years old. I'm interested in figuring out how the world does work. And so I listened to the podcasts of, you know, uh, Sam Harris and um, a lot of science stuff because I don't know how the world works and how do I fit in? I'm I turned 65 this year. I've got maybe, if I'm lucky, a quarter of my life left. You know, what am I going to choose to do with it? Well, one of the things is is the book club and um, stuff. But yeah, just keep looking for community. And this is a good group. Uh, Rebecca can give you contacts to talk to, I'm sure, almost any of us um, about anything. If you ever come to Southern California, there's a bunch of us down here. And... Um, Join us for the field trip. We're all, well, not all, but a whole bunch of us are going to California in December. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we got, we do do a lot of extra bonus things, which make it really fun in addition to reading. And, you know, it is amazing how quickly everybody becomes a friend. I say that post-Mormons and readers are just a super special niche. It re really a certain kind of a person. And I just love it. So I wonder if now we should just very quickly, since we lost all our slides, we usually end with some slides. I'm just going to preview next month's book, which will be coming up a little bit sooner because this was a little bit later closer to halloween it's on the melinda do you remember 11th whatever that second sunday is i, I think it's on the 11th. yeah but I, I but again Lori, like bruce is trying to say we vote on topics we vote on categories we read not necessarily mormon books in yeah, fact this is the season, last we one. really don't we read just the gamut because we're really trying to figure out what do we believe now as a Mormon reading is different. We read scriptures, conference talks, come follow me manual. We're told to stay away from certain things um, overtly and inadvertently. And so now it's like the floodgates are open. Let's just read everything and figure out who we are. Um, and of course we discuss the books through the lens of Mormonism because that's where we all come from, but we really are re-educating ourselves. So but there is Rebecca, before, there is a list. There is a list of all the books we've read the last two years. Oh, yeah. which I think 
It's if you posted haven't read to the feature tab. Yeah. So if you want to do some back reading. Might be in a place where you might appreciate these, yeah. depending on where you are. You know, so we've all kind of been moving along and with interests and and new people join us. So we always try to point them to, you know, places they can they can uh, experience some of the things we've experienced along the way. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Oh, those um, dates, so, Rebecca? The, I'm not dates? sure why I was doing Is this. it the 11th? Well, November 1st is Darren Perry. And then November 15th. I think I'm just going to talk about the book. Okay, and we'll then the that's fine. Because the, there's so much. Yeah, we have all, look, John, the just on Facebook, we'll see all the dates. The book is the 11th. Okay, so our book for next month is called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. It's written by a husband and wife, Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein, Evolution and Changes in Modern Life. So this is kind of what we were talking about. I'll just quickly read this. We are living through the most prosperous age in all of human history, yet we are listless, divided, and miserable. Wealth and comfort are unparalleled, but our political landscape is unmoored. The rates of suicide, loneliness, chronic illness continue to skyrocket. How do we explain this gap between these truths, and how should we respond? For evolutionary biologists, Heather Hang and Brett Weinstein, the cause of our woes is clear. The modern world is out of sync with our ancient brains. I love this. Oh my gosh, can't wait to read it. And our bodies. Drawing on decades of work teaching in college classrooms and exploring Earth's most biodiverse ecosystems, a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century outlines a science-based worldview that will empower you to live a better and wiser life. So this is going to be fascinating. And again, just a completely not nothing to do with Mormonism whatsoever, yet everything to do with those of us that were Mormons. So that's coming up on the 11th. We will get all this information to you guys. We'll send it out through email. We'll put it on Facebook um, for the things that are coming up. And I guess maybe it's true. We should mention what's coming up in just a little over a week. And that is on November 1st. It's um, Darren Perry, a Shoshone elder and storyteller, who is going to talk to us about the Bear River Massacre. And this will be a Zoom meeting on a Tuesday night, November 1st. We'll put the link out very carefully. And uh, you do not have to have read the book to attend. It's a very short read, though. It's called The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History. It was just voted the... Um, book of the year by I think the BYU history department. So oh. anyway, that's coming up with Darren and that'll be on Tuesday the 1st. So I'll get more information out that and we will be working together as our executive team on making Zoom safer for everyone because we don't want that to happen again. So if anyone has any good uh, guru that could guide us or anybody has any input, just message me. We'd love to talk to somebody about getting everything secured so that, so sorry again, that happened to everybody, but it did make it spooky, right? So. <laughs> Maybe that was it. So, all right, let's stop recording, Bruce, and we'll say goodbye. And thank you for hanging in there, everybody. Have a